0: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. It's your show. This is where you talk, Bruce.
1: You know, I was all prepared for a long pause there, and instead I just get a bleep.
0: Well, listen, here's the deal. Uh, I'm in control of ribs on the show. Uh, You were in control once upon a time, but since I'm the one with the recording device here... Uh, I get, I guess, what we'll call final edits, and uh, ribs still rule. Uh, Bruce, let's put a bow on last week's episode. Uh, what won the poll? Uh, the year, the week before was Mister Perfect, and then we kind of took a week off and did just rapid fire Q and A from our listeners, and we did it right there on Twitter. We called the show hashtag Love to Know. What was the feedback you got from last week's show, Bruce? Well, feedback from me personally was
1: I, I loved it. Cause I didn't have to prepare. It was great. You didn't have to prepare. You just hit me rapid fire questions and I hit you back rapid fire answers. But if there was any main feedback was that we need
0: more voodoo ooze. Voodoo ooze uh, was, was probably one of the more talked about segments. Uh, also really, really popular was me getting tickled with Vince saying I wouldn't be on TV if I was dead, which I still think is amazing. Uh, but easily the most talked about segment from last week was when we had, uh, a table full of wrestlers ordering lunch and you went on a roll with your impressions. Uh, what was the one that stuck out to you or that you got the most compliments on?
1: Piper, believe it or not, really? I, I, that shocked me that the majority of feedback I got was people love the Piper one.
0: I, I played it for a, a mutual friend of ours who's in the business over the weekend and, uh, he was on me all night about, I just don't understand. How does anybody give a shit about brother love and the mortgage guy on a podcast? I don't even have guests. And I played that clip for him and he listened to it all the way through and he put it down on the chicken salad recipe and said, okay, I get it. But you know, you did point out we missed one. We missed an we impression. H- who's the impression? Can you give us a taste of it and go ahead and while you're doing it, uh, plug his podcast
1: her well goddamn slobber knocker so cold so cold a uh, good old jr we left jr out we didn't get a, order any ribs with extra sauce on the side so there that's you, just wrong she, and, and jim ross has a great podcast over on podcast one that uh, is called the ross report and he's a friend of the show and we just want to give him a good little shout out there
0: uh he was on tv over the weekend uh for bowl season he actually made the trip to watch his Sooners smash the Auburn Tigers. They're now 2-0 against the state in bowl games in the last few years. So good for JR. I'm sure we'll hear a lot about that on this week's Ross Report.
1: And I know that put a big smile on his face. So
0: Well, it put a big smile on my face listening to conversations with the big guy this week. Ryback put the show over huge, uh, very complimentary. Didn't realize he was a listener. Glad to know he's listening. And you actually know Ryan, isn't that right?
1: I do. I'm glad he's not a listener and not pissed off at the show because I wouldn't want him pissed off at me. That's for damn sure. But uh, I know Ryan from back when he was in Ohio Valley Wrestling, Louisville, Kentucky. And he was always coming up with creative new stuff back then. And it's
0: nice to know that he's listening. Absolutely. We appreciate the support there. I also want to give a quick shout out uh, to some other folks. Uh, I know that Tyson Kidd has been a big listener with us for a long time had an opportunity to chat with him over the weekend. Huge fan of his work. It's a shame that we're not seeing him in the ring right now. Uh, Hopefully there's more to come in that regard, but we appreciate his support. I also heard from Justin Roberts. Uh, He's enjoying the show these days. Uh, And I know that you've had some conversations as well with Will Sasso. Am I right? Yeah, I was shocked to hear that Will Sasso was
1: a big fan of the show. And we reached out and uh, tweeted back and forth a direct message And I'm a big fan of his. And you talk about a guy that can do some impressions. Will Sasso is off the charts. Hilarious. And I'm a big fan of his.
0: All right, let's get into it. What happened when the Million Dollar Man came to the World Wrestling Federation? It happened in 1987, Bruce. We're at the 30-year anniversary. How old does that make you feel? You ain't funny. Well... It's not funny either how over this gimmick was, and I can't wait to talk about it. But before we talk about the Million Dollar Man, let's talk about regular old Ted DiBiase. Uh, Ted was actually adopted by Iron Mike DiBiase, who was a wrestler. And uh, when Ted was 15 years old, his father Mike passed away when he suffered a heart attack during a match. So he actually died in the ring. Uh, Any memories of Ted's father, Iron Mike DiBiase, Bruce?
1: I remember as a kid in the uh, when I lived in El Paso, Texas, we got TV out of the Amarillo Territory, and I actually saw Ted's father wrestle. And, you know, Ted's mom was also a wrestler, Helen Hill.
0: Wow. So he didn't know that, did you? I did not know that.
1: So he comes from an all-around wrestling family. Uh, his, his mom was a professional wrestler as well, went by the name, I believe it was he- Helen Hill, that's um, not a real name, but that's what she worked as, and they adopted Ted and, and raised him up right by God in West Texas, and, and Teddy went on to uh, West Texas State University where the Funks went, where Tito Santana, Tully Blanchard, just all the greats, uh, Texas greats went to West Texas State University, and that produced a lot of great professional wrestlers.
0: Well, it's, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because so many guys went through there and we've all heard about West Texas state. Uh, like you said, you know, Ted DiBiase, Dusty Rhodes, Tully Blanchard, you know, Tor- Terry and Dory Funk, uh, Bobby Duncan, Manny Fernandez. What do you think it was about West Texas state that created so many professional wrestlers? The water. Okay.
1: <laughs> you- I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really strange. I don't know if it was simply that the Funks were based out of Amarillo and based in the area there, and they were a big part of that football program and were close and just made relationships with, with the guys in the football program and got the athletes out of that that, that wanted to be wrestlers. But there were quite a few of them.
0: Yeah, there really were, and uh, it has quite a legacy to professional wrestling. Uh, speaking of wrestling, though, Ted goes ahead and finishes college there and decides to follow in his dad's footsteps and become a professional wrestler. Uh, he went on to be trained by Terry and Dory Funk Jr., and you're not going to find you know, too many trainers better than that. Uh, Dory still operates a wrestling school in Ocala, Florida, and I'm pretty sure that we will do a separate show Uh, But do you have any specific stories about Dory training guys that you could mention here?
1: Well, Dory, in his later years, when he would come up to the WWE and do what we called the Funkin' Dojo, which Dory would come up for a week or two, and we would bring in guys from all over the world to come to the studios, come to the warehouse, we called it the warehouse, where we had a ring set up. And Dory and my brother Tom would take guys and train them for a couple weeks, and we would get to see them up close and personal to see what guys had. We would kind of raid independents and bring top independent wrestlers from all over the world and have them come in and let Dory and Tom play with them for a couple weeks.
0: Uh, Ted actually makes his in-ring debut as a referee, and this happens in June of 74 right there in the Amarillo Territory. Uh, Not long after that, he moves on to Bill Watts' Mid-South promotion, uh, where he works his first year as a wrestler from the summer of 85 until the summer of 76. Fast forward to 78, and he actually defeats Dick Slater to become the Missouri State Champion, uh, but loses it a few weeks later to Dick Murdoch. And to younger fans, Bruce, kind of put in perspective what the Missouri Championship meant, because that was a bigger title than I think some young people really understand.
1: Well, the reason that the Missouri State Championship was such a big title, it was akin to, in the territory days, it was akin to what the Intercontinental Championship is like today. And it was a stepping stone to the World Championship. And the reason it was a stepping stone was that Sam Mushnick, who was the president of the National Wrestling Alliance, promoted St. Louis, St. Louis being in Missouri and that In that promotion, the Missouri championship was their main title, and guys that were being groomed for the World Heavyweight Championship would oftentimes spend a little time in the St. Louis area, and if they became the Missouri state champion, then usually people would start looking at them going, okay, here's a future champion right here.
0: I don't know uh, when we'll talk about them again. Do you have anything interesting you can throw at us for Murdoch and Slater, or should we move on?
1: Oh, we can move on. There's enough Dick Slater and, <laughs> and Dick Murdoch stories. Um, Do you have any to fill a few questions? podcasts? But there's also a whole lot that, Give me that one. shouldn't be talked about. Let's say that.
0: Give me one we shouldn't <sighs> talk about. Well, Dick Murdoch Here we go. was
1: a... Dickie was a, a barroom brawler, and that wasn't a gimmick, folks. That was real life. And I'll never forget when, in later years, this was in the 80s, so this was mid 80s, that Murdoch came back in, and his gimmick was Captain Redneck, Dick Murdoch. And Houston, of course, was a stop on the Mid South tour. And Murdoch coming through, Houston is famous for, right outside of Houston, a little town called Pasadena, Texas. And in Pasadena, Texas, they had a honky-tonk. For those that don't know what a honky-tonk is, a honky-tonk is like a country and western bar where they primarily sell beer. And they do mixed drinks, but none of these fancy Dan mixed drinks and shit that you you see in bars these days. And they danced to country and western music they had both kinds of music country and western and gillies was made famous with the movie urban cowboy which starred john travolta and deborah winger and gillies was it was just a dive it was a gigantic it was the world's largest honky tonk it was a giant just we called it a kicker bar because there was a country station in Houston called K-I-K-K. And if you listen to K-I-K-K, then you was a kicker. So, if you went out to Gillies, uh, the other gimmick at Gillies was they always put a bumper sticker on everybody's car, so no matter where you were all over Houston, you'd see people with these Gillies stickers on. Anyway, get back to Dick Murdoch. Dick Murdoch, the name fit him perfectly, Captain Redneck. Dickie loved to fight. And Murdoch, when he would finish up the matches Friday nights in Houston, first place that Murdoch would want to go be out to Gillies. And as soon as Murdoch would walk in the place, he'd belly up to the bar, get himself cold beer. And within, I would usually say no less than five minutes, there would be some other big redneck. that would have to come up and say, Hey, ain't you one of them fake wrestlers on the TV? to which Murdoch would respond with a punch to the jaw. So this happens, we, we ran every other week. So this happens over a six-week period. Every single show, Murdoch would leave the Coliseum and go down to Gillies and get in a fight, so much so that the newspaper columnists would report on um, Dick Murdoch's after friday night at the coliseum fights at gillies and finally watts had to ask murdoch to please stop going to gillies and gillies made the request to please ask murdoch not to stop by for a cold beverage
0: anymore that's awesome well there you go that's why you listen to something to wrestle with you're tuned into a million dollar man podcast and you get a captain redneck story uh, Ted goes on to have a short run in the WWF in 1979, uh, when he became the first ever North American champion, he ends up losing the title, uh, to Pat Patterson, who then merged that title with the South African championship and later became the very first intercontinental champion after that grueling tournament we've talked about before in Rio de Janeiro, which as we all know, was a shoot and had him hanging off from the rafters. Damn right. Uh, A little bit of wrestling history here, a little trivia for you. Who was (coughs) Hulk Hogan's first ever opponent in Madison Square Garden? And Hulk is working as a heel. Theodore DiBiase. On December 12th, 1979. I find that fascinating, consider that 10 years later when they would cross paths, it was totally different for both of these guys uh, after leaving the WWF, Ted goes on to work in Georgia and some other territories. He wrestled all the big names at the time, Ric Flair, Paul Orndorff, the one-man gang, the fabulous Freebirds. Uh, there's lots of big names on that list. What, what, what of those sticks out the most to you about his feuds in that early 80s era? Probably
1: Ted's stuff with Dick Slater at the time, because in Georgia – at that time, you, you had DiBiase, you had Slater, and Ted was that white meat babyface. He was a traditional, get fired up, slap the mat, mess his hair up, and make that fiery comeback. And uh, Slater was just an old fashioned, methodical heel, and they were perfectly matched. Both just great, great workers. And during that time, I would I would have to say that. DiBiase and Slater were were two of the best, and, and they hooked them up in Georgia.
0: Yeah, they really did. And uh, if you haven't seen any of uh, DiBiase's early stuff, it's worth throwing in your Google machine because there is stuff out there that is worth looking at for sure. Uh, he goes back to Mid-South in 1980 and stays there until he goes to the WWF in 87. Uh, he does do some time in All Japan in 83, and he wins the uh, NWA United National Championship in a tournament on October 13th by defeating Jerry Lawler by forfeit. Uh, DiBiase lost the title to Doot Doot Doot. Um, <laughs> what are your memories of old Doot 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 as a wrestler? We've never talked about that. Back in 82, he was Pro Wrestling Illustrated's most hated wrestler. Um, your, your memories of Doot 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 as a performer?
1: Most most hated by the boys or by well, the fans? Listen, or by to, the, you. listen to you. Dave, Dave, Dave. He knows I love him, damn it. Well, Michael Hayes had a mouth on him, still does have a mouth on him. And Michael, if you were to do a wrestling clinic and try to explain to people how to talk the people into the building, you would have Michael Hayes teach that class. Because Michael would talk the people into the building. Michael's prom- Michael always had, from the day that he started in the business, a money promo. If he was going to talk, by God, he was going to sell tickets and he was going to put asses in seats. And he did it from the very first day that he started. So Michael had the gift of gab. Michael wasn't the greatest worker in the world but he didn't have to be because he had Terry Bam Bam Gordy and Buddy Roberts on his side. All Michael had to do was run his mouth, get people in the building and take a hell of an ass whooping. But he
0: wasn't bad by any stretch of the imagination either. No, but he would say, Hey, I, I wasn't the best, but I didn't have to be. So it is what it is. Uh, switching gears back to Dibiase, Uh, I'm trying to kind of paint a picture here, talking about all these different territories and these titles uh, but specifically, I want to talk a good deal about all Japan. Uh, he goes on to win some tag belts with Stan Hansen there and they held them for nearly two years. Uh, and, and guys were notorious in the eighties for whenever they could taking, uh, frequent tours of Japan. And they had a much different working style than American wrestling did. And DiBiase has often said that Terry Funk used to tell him, uh, in America, you're thinking work. And trying to make it look like a shoot, but in Japan you're thinking shoot and trying to make it look like a work. Um, could you kind of explain the difference in the styles to maybe someone who doesn't understand what Japanese wrestling was like in the eighties compared to here in America?
1: Well, I would have to say Japanese wrestling for an American, um, was first of all, it was great pay, but going over there you're for the most part usually being brought in as a heel. So in in Japan the Americans were the the dastardly evil heels. I mean after all we blew up their country. So for guys that were baby faces in the states, it was a different world and a whole different style when they went to Japan because they're they're not being cheered, they're not working a baby face style and the Japanese were very into shoot style or, st- I guess, strong style, whatever the fuck they call it, but they beat the shit out of each other. Yeah. And where in, in the States, here you are, and as Terry eloquently said, you try to work and, and take care of your opponent, make it look like it hurts like hell, but it doesn't actually. Over there, it hurt like hell and didn't always look that great, but they beat the shit out of each other. So it's just a completely different mindset. But the money was good, and it would give you a break and, and kind of rest you up from the time wherever you're working back in the States. And DiBiase, it's one of those stories of right place, right time, and timing being everything. Because Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody were the big tag team for all Japan. Right. And Brody left and went to work for Anoki. So when he did that, left Hanson without a partner. And Hanson needed a partner, and DiBiase was right place, right time, and he got the nod.
0: I mean, really think about that. You're replacing Brody in Japan. I mean, I'm trying to really lay the groundwork here so you can appreciate what people think of DiBiase as a performer. Let's talk about Watts and Mid-South a little bit. Uh, The North American title there was his four times, um... He defeated Mike George, Paul Arndorf, uh, Junkyard Dog, and Brad Armstrong for those opportunities. His business with Junkyard Dog was huge. Uh, They worked as a tag team uh, that Ted referred to as kind of salt and pepper. And then he turned heel, and he turned heel loading up that black glove. And uh, he also went ahead and did a lot of tag team work there too. Five-time Mid-South Tag Team Champion, holding those with Mr. Olympia, Matt Bourne, Hercules Hernandez, and twice with Dr. Death, Steve Williams. So he's worked everywhere here in Mid-South, both Mid-South and the UWF, uh, as a babyface and as a heel, had a phenomenal tuxedo match that people still talk about with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I don't know. I don't know. Well, go ahead. Um, Are you criticizing the phenomenal? Uh,
1: no, it was phenomenal. Why was it's- it Phenomenal
0: but to tell if you haven't seen it why would people say it's phenomenal you know what i'm talking about
1: well here's the thing was leading up to it there it was in a period in mid south it was mid south at that time we may have been UWF at that time i don't really recall but we used to get the cards sent in and jr would hand write out the card for each individual town
0: and you know, when let's, we, let's take a time out right there. Jim Ross is helping run things for Bill Watts. He is kind of the right hand man of Bill Watts. So if you've only known Jim Ross as the head of talent relations for the WWF or as a commentator on television, even back in the day, he was in the office and he was the right hand of Bill Watts. Is that fair to say?
1: That's very fair to say, and, and you, it's also fair to say that uh Jim Ross stuck his neck out for me and helped get me in the office with Bill Watts. I was already in the office in Houston with Paul Bosch, but Jim helped me a great deal getting me on air uh, with Mid-South UWF as an interviewer and ring announcer and different things on national television, and also helping out uh, with the TV and different things uh, with UWF. But Jr. would send out the cards, after the booking and he would send out, uh, the cards for each town and DBS
0: and Duggan this mother's day and father's day. Look no further for the perfect gift than paint Your It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time I mean it, I've used paint Your to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law all from paint Your My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, PaintYourLife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson. With paintyourlife.com, that can become a reality. You can put people and places together, even if they've never been there. You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off. And free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Had every single match, kind of match imaginable. They had coal miner glove on a pole match where you had to, you put a coal miner's glove on top of the pole, you had to climb the pole, get the glove, you could use the glove. They had cage matches. They had Texas death matches. They had no DQ, no count out, fucking set your balls on fire match. They had every (laughs) kind of match you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And we were actually sitting in Houston thinking Jesus Christ what the hell is left to do there there's nothing left to do with Duggan and DiBiase. you know of course we have the loser leave town when it's time for Teddy to go make his Japan trip and sure enough the envelope was sent in FedEx and we opened it up and it's Duggan versus DiBiase in a cage, loser leave town, coal miner's glove on a pole, no DQ, no count out, obviously, because you're in a cage, but all this shit's laid out. And the last thing was both men will be wearing (laughs) tuxedos and the loser gets painted yellow. So you have every fucking gimmick in the world in one match because they had already done all of them up to that point. So let's just throw them all in one one fucking match and have that go around the horn. So it was, it was a, uh, it was a joke, but it was reality.
0: It, <laughs> it really, actually happened, and it's out there. It's on the Mid South DVD. Uh, that was released in September of 2013. Jim Ross did commentary for it. Uh, Another shout-out to our good buddy JR. Good old JR uh, does commentary on that match. It was the first time I saw it, and there was lots of hype online. that Man, these guys beat the shit out of each other. you got to check it out. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know about that. Whatever. And then you watch it, and you're like, okay, this is different than what I thought. Uh, Now, when you're mentioning all this stuff, you know, coal miner's glove in a cage, tuxedo, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Ted DiBiase has credited the business being on fire for a year or so to Dundee as Booker. But he also says that the reason Mid-South got in the shape they were in is because Dundee just hot-shotted the territory. (laughs) Correct. So, you know, he says that he knew the writing was on the wall when he saw they were hot-shotting everything because they had been doing good, consistent business when it was just Watts. But when Dundee's brought in and they start doing all this Memphis-type stuff where it's gimmick, 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 eventually there's nowhere else to go. That is correct. Uh, we follow that uh, strategy here on the show, which is why we don't do Vince McMahon one week, Austin the next week, the Invasion the next <laughs> week, the Rock the next week. What are we going to do in two months? We'll be done. So we stretch that out a little bit, and we talk for two or three damn hours about the Million Dollar Man. Um, so while this is all going on and this feels like a good time to talk about it, there's lots of talk about what will DiBiase do? Um, there were rumors at the time that DiBiase was being groomed to be NWA world champion. And I don't know how much of that you heard, how much of that was rumor and innuendo, but even Ric Flair would say he's probably the best wrestler he never lost it to. Uh, Do you think that DiBiase was ever in serious consideration or did Rick politically have a fence around it at that time?
1: I don't know if Rick politically had a fence around it at that time. They, you know, they were switching off him and Dusty and, um, nah, but it was, it was Crockett controlled. Jim Crockett controlled the championship at that time and Crockett's guy was flair. So Crockett controlled it, Dusty was the booker, and DiBiase wasn't a Crockett guy. So when you you backtrack and you look at the UWF, and, and in, in all of this, you have to take into consideration it was during a time that Bill Watts was looking to sell the UWF, uh, the Territory. And he had just opened up beautiful offices in Dallas, Texas, and so on and so forth. And he ends up making a deal with Jim Crockett to sell UWF to Crockett. And in doing so, there was, and this is a whole nother show, man, Uh, (laughs) talking about that deal. But I was there for a lot of that. And there were just a lot of assumptions made and there were a lot of questions, but the questions never really got answered. Like guys that were working for Bill Watts, if if Jim Crockett now he has bought the territory, is Crockett going to honor my contract? Is Am I still going to get paid the same? Am I still going to be used? Um, just there were a lot of questions and not a whole lot of answers forthcoming. Well, as all this is, is taking place, I'm working in the Houston office. I'm also uh, doing UWF TV, and DiBiase is in Japan. So Ted Ted is in Japan where all this shit's going on, and he doesn't he doesn't know what's what's happening. He's he's hearing everything long distance. Well, in the middle of all this shit, I'm talking to Vince McMahon about what's gonna happen with me. So Crockett buys territory, I call Vince that day from Louisiana and I say, Hey, here's what's happening here. I was not a big fan of Jim Crockett and why? did not why. I had worked. I had worked with him uh, in some Superdome shows and some other things over the years, and he just was very aloof to me, and I didn't care for him. It was it was kind of like oil and water.
0: Let me ask you this: When you say he was aloof to me, do you aloof. mean he was aloof to you personally, or you found his demeanor in general to everyone to be aloof, based on your observation?
1: Both. Okay. Both and he was one of those guys that if they didn't know who you were, could treat you like a piece of shit. And then once somebody would say, Oh, Hey, this is so-and-so he's a
0: good guy. Oh, Hey buddy, how you doing? And you found him to be disingenuous. That's a perfect word. Okay. So
1: I didn't have any desire to work for Jim Crockett. So i made my calls and, and I was going to go to work for Vince. Vince and I kind of had a, understanding on the phone that I would go to work for him. And he got me up to Connecticut in this whole time. DiBiase's in Japan.
0: Now let me ask you this. Ted has said <laughs> that when he knew, cause you were pretty good buddies with him, even back to the Houston days, um, he's seeing that, Hey, this is coming to an end here. Uh, the, the territory is going to be on the way down now with Dundee as Booker. He's maybe shot of the territory to death. So, Uh, he's thinking maybe I'll work more in Japan and he's not sure what he's going to do, but he knows that you're having these secret conversations with Vince McMahon. And he says that he, he said, Hey, Bruce mention my name. See if there's any interest. Is that what happened?
1: That is true. But see, Dundee had already left. Ken Mantell had taken over the book and, and, but it's too late. It's
0: it's too late though.
1: Uh, Uh, It was, yeah, it was an uphill battle at that point. The, the damage had been done. But yes, DiBiase, he stayed at my house whenever he was in Houston, and we were good friends. We made the towns together, and yeah, we were buddies. So during this time, he did. He knew I was going to New York, and while I was there, he said, hey, ask if there's any interest. So in my meeting with Vince, once I made sure I was good, <coughs> yeah, let's take care of yourself first, um, I said, hey. Is there any interest in Ted DiBiase? And Vince's ears perked up and said, well, sure. What's his contractual status? What's what's he doing? I said, well, he doesn't have one because his deal with Watts was a separate deal, and that was over uh, with the sale, and there was talk that Crockett wanted him and that Crockett wanted to offer Ted a a contract, and there was those rumor and innuendo that they wanted to groom Ted for the world championship, but no one had really spoken to Ted about that. Right. And he wasn't getting straight answers about what kind of money deal is there on the table.
0: Let me kind of run through that. Uh, Ted has said that what happens is he comes back, And is booked for Fort worth TV and he goes and when he's there, he talks to Jim Crockett himself. And, uh, Crockett says something along the lines of, we'd love to have you on board. What's it going to take to get you? And Ted said, well, I know what Luger's making and he doesn't know the business and he's not the performer. I am. He's just a look and I am worth every bit of what you're paying him. And Crockett goes for it and says, okay, fair enough. So he thinks he's got a big money deal with this Luger concept and at least having a verbal commitment. And he tries to get a cherry on top and says, and I get to go to Japan and Crockett even co-signs that, but he doesn't have him sign anything. A week goes by and there's still no contact. Uh, And then Vince calls and asks him to come up. And I'm sure you have more details about how that phone call goes. Do you want to shed any light on that? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd asked
1: Vince if there was any interest in DiBiase, and I told Ted. Ted was in Japan, and I want to say that we we spoke when I was out at the Westin in in Stanford. Um, I said, yeah, there's interest, and gave him Vince's numbers and told him to call. They spoke. And all this time, there's also shit, you know, rumblings. He comes back. He uh, does the meeting with Crockett and so on and so forth. And he said, I'm still talking to Ted back and forth. He says, is there really any interest? What do they want to do? Well, Vince had shared with me that he had a gimmick in mind. and But he didn't say what it was. Didn't say what it Well, I knew what it Yes, he did tell me what it was. But I, had, I was sworn to secrecy. I couldn't tell DiBiase.
0: Okay, so I want to circle back to that because this is so critical to me, but just for a second, let's make sure everybody's following along here. Uh, Jim Crockett is taking over the world now. He's trying to expand to counter-program what Vince has already got a head start on. They're going national. The biggest piece of that is to buy out the next biggest guy, which is Bill Watts. One of Bill Watts' top guys, whether it's baby face or heel, any way you slice it, is Ted DiBiase. Watts has had a few of his other guys go north and blow up. Junkyard Dog was a huge star for them. Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and others would be huge stars for them. So Ted DiBiase is one of the hottest free agents in the business at this time. Is that fair to say, Bruce? Yes. And and it's worth mentioning, Vince McMahon has this gimmick that he refuses to tell DiBiase about. He says he has something in mind, and he wants to talk to him about it in person, and he won't tell it to him over the phone. So he says, go have your meeting with Crockett, but don't sign anything. I want to see you in person before I tell you about this gimmick and you want to hear it before you sign. They offer him a big contract and supposedly he's been groomed to work with Ric Flair for the world title back when the NWA world title actually meant something in the middle of all this. Vince McMahon has created this million dollar man character and told Bruce Pritchard about it. So Tell me the first time you have this conversation about the gimmick, how he pitches it. And and I don't want to hear you say it.
1: Well, actually though, I'll Pat Patterson is the one who explained the gimmick to me
0: first. Okay. So let's say I'll be, I'll be Bruce and you be Pat. So what, <laughs> so, so what do you guys have in mind for DBSI? What's this gimmick Vince keeps talking you about? You will
1: not believe what they have for DiBiase. I, I tell you, you, you have the DiBiase. Imagine him in the in the thousand dollars suit, right? And he's dressed, and he's nice, and everywhere he goes, he buys everything. And I'm not doing a good patty. Sounds like a fucking uh, pizza maker. You always but do he, that, though. <laughs> I know. But he just explained it about that he would buy everything, and and he would be this wealthy guy, and he would just buy people off and buy things off. and, And he goes, ah, Vince, he's got this idea. So I was sworn to secrecy, could not tell Ted, and I'm just starting there, so... I'm sure as hell not going to breathe a word of this because I don't know if this is a test for me to, to say, hey, tell Bruce the gimmick, tell him don't tell Ted, and then we'll see if Ted knows. I, I had no idea. I just kept my mouth shut. So, th- But the deal was actually in the scheme of things, when they brought Ted up, before Vince told him the idea, Ted had to agree to come.
0: Yeah, and so what we hear uh, from Ted is that it took two face-to-face meetings. So, um, you know, he asked him to come up, and he doesn't reveal what it is when he actually goes up the first time. And he says something like, it's never been done before. And in our business, that's really saying how special it is because everything's been done. And we say that all the time in 2017. But even 30 years ago, they're saying everything's been done before. Everything right. just repackaged or rehashed or rebuilt, but this is really unique and never been done before. And he wouldn't give him the idea until he had his word that he was coming on board. So now after promising, I'll tell you face to face, Vince is backing up a little bit and saying, Nope, I need your words are coming on board. So Ted says, I need some time to think. And this seems like, and this is from Ted's account. But I've heard this from the road warriors too. They're all in a room making this pitch. And all of a sudden now, Vince gets called away. So Vince is out of the room now. And it's just Ted and Pat. And Pat says something like, think about this. If Vince could put the tights on and climb in the ring, what he wants to do with you is what he would do for himself. It's his idea and he created it. He's going to do all he can to make it work. And you heard something similar where when he meets with the road warriors, he gets called away for a few minutes and just thrown on the desk in front of them in plain sight where they can see very easily our royalty amounts for checks to Roddy Piper and other guys just to kind of give them an idea of what the money is. Is that a Vince M.O.? to get called away for a minute and either have a private conversation with a confidant to establish some trust and some commonality or to leave some pay stubs laying around some sort of they feel like they got a little something extra it wasn't just the dog and pony show from vince there was something okay that was all the work but this is real because i've heard a, a variation of that over and over
1: mother's day is around the corner I think it's more coincidence and, and people tying it all in. But there was definitely if, for example, if I had a relationship with someone, then by all means, he would make sure that that I was there for that meeting and that I had time with them alone to give a sales pitch and what have you, and reinforce his sales pitch. But um, probably more coincidence than anything, him being called away, but. Yeah, definitely. If you had a relationship with somebody, if Jr. had a relationship with somebody, you you use that and have them give their pitch off to the side. And then Vince comes in and Vince gives the pitch and then you try and close the deal.
0: So he goes home and uh, makes a call to Terry Funk. And Terry says, if Vince McMahon has an idea like that for you, pack your bags and don't look back.
1: So- pack your bags, Theodore, don't look back.
0: Uh, so his wife makes the second trip with him and this time it's the full Dog and Pony show Um, you know they're doing the dinner thing they're going to uh, the theater shows and the fancy car and the chauffeur and they're staying at the Helmsley Palace just really trying to pile on and impress the wife and he meets with Vince and Vince lays out the million dollar man gimmick, uh, but first says, now that you've committed to me, do you want to call Crockett or do you want me to? Are you there for that conversation where uh, where Vince offers to call Crockett and tell him? No, I wasn't there. Well, Ted says that Vince said, okay, now before I tell you the gimmick uh, and I have your word that you're coming, do you want to call Crockett or do you want me to? And Ted says, I'll make the call. So Ted makes the call right then. And once Vince knows for sure, he's just given his notice, then he tells him about the Million Dollar Man gimmick. Ted is super excited about it, Uh, tells his wife, pinch me. And all these years later, he still credits Vince McMahon with giving him the biggest break of his career and treating him better than any promoter ever. Uh, Before we get into some of the specifics, let's just gloss over this. Do you remember ever seeing any jealousy from any of the other boys with the way... Million Dollar Man had to kind of live the gimmick. So where some of the other guys are piling in the cars, he's got a limo.
1: I tell you, it's funny. We all expected that. And I dare say Ted expected that. But I didn't see it. I think Ted was one of those talents that everyone else respected and they looked up to, and it wasn't, some green guy with no experience and has a look or has something that all of a sudden just got this great gimmick. Ted was a second-generation wrestler who had worked his way up through the ranks, who deserved everything he got, and was in a position to finally reap the rewards. And I think for the most part, people respected him and said, you know what, goddamn, he deserves it. You know, if Hogan deserves it, DiBiase deserves it.
0: So let's talk about that. Uh, he mentioned, you mentioned Hogan. DeBiase puts over that when he first sees Hogan here, uh, Hogan makes some sort of remark to him in the back. Hey, time for me to pay you back because he remembered how Ted had carried him to a good match at MSG in 79. And obviously when he's coming into the WWF in 87, Hogan's on top in a big way. They're in different worlds. But he, he thinks it means, uh, that it meant a lot to him, Ted, I mean, that Hogan would go out of his way to come over and, and say something like that. What was your perception of the way D.B.I.C. would be brought in? Was the, was the plan all along, before he actually makes the debut, hey, we're putting in with Hogan right away? Or do you remember what some of the preliminary ideas, beyond just the character and the vignettes, but as far as a program,
1: there weren't that it's funny. It was a different time in place. You had when dibiase came in, you had one big event. That was WrestleMania, right? That was it. So everything else were programs that would main event in individual live event markets. So a program, if you will, an angle would be something that could last six months. Or you made it all the way around the country with that match so when they would kind of pair guys up they did it for that long a term if you were in the new york market sometimes you'd have to figure out three different matches to to go around the horn with them but it was it was a different it was different programming at that time so there wasn't as much thought to that as there was, let's get the character over first. And the, you know, the initial thought with the vignettes, the million dollar man vignettes, that Joel Watts, you know, Joel Watts was brought in to bring a lot of that to the WWF. And Joel did those first vignettes. We did them, uh, worked with Joel. We did those in Dallas, the very first ones. Just because here, here's how funny shit was, we shot a lot of those million dollar man vignettes in Dallas because that's where Joel was living at the time, right? And so he had a lot of connections in Dallas, and so we just shot him in Dallas um, instead of doing it in New York or doing it somewhere else. Is later on, you know, I would I didn't do what was convenient; I did what was right for the for the gimmick.
0: But um, let's talk about the vignettes. Um, I think one of the first ones is him riding in the back of a limo, and he's introducing himself and flashing a big stack of hundred dollar bills and talking about all the things he can buy. And then he gets a paper cut on his finger with the money, and has Virgil take him to the emergency room. And the receptionist won't let him see a doctor, so he gives her three hundred bucks to get some attention. And then finishes the bit with everybody's got a price for the million dollars man. For million dollar man. Was that the first one you remember?
1: That is the first one. Yeah. That was the introduction.
0: So, whose idea was the catch, was the line at the end? That seems like something you guys would have talked about. I know back then there weren't strict scripts like we experience today, but how much of that was freestyling and was that line pre planned as like the hook for all these vignettes? The Million Dollar Man, everybody's got a price
1: for the Million Dollar Man. That was straight from Vince. That was Vince's stuff. That was the Million Dollar Man shtick everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. And later on, uh, because Ted and I were friends, we went way back. Um, I love Ted's laugh. And we incorporated that into it. (laughs) And we just would incorporate little things, little Ted isms. And then we, as we got to know Vince more, Incorporate, you know, Vincisms into that. Now,
0: it's worth mentioning, he's signing here um, right after you do. So this—that's probably what April of '87.
1: I signed in. Uh, well, I went in April of
0: '87, and and Teddy was right there on my heels. Uh, he actually appears um, for the first time on May fifteenth, '87, at a house show in Houston, Texas. He went to the ring, didn't wrestle, but had a confrontation with the One Man Gang. It's Houston. It's right after you start. You got to be at that show, right? Yeah, I was definitely
1: there. It was the first Houston wrestling, uh, WWF promoted event.
0: We're going to talk about that one day. Who knows when that maybe when we do a host choice, because Houston wrestling is never going back on the fucking bowl. That thing's been slaughtered like more times than Auburn in bowl games. Talk to me about this. What Um, the
1: hell does that mean?
0: Well, a couple of people heard it and they're fired up about it. Roll tide. Um, do you remember specifically when he makes this debut here? Cause I don't think, I mean, obviously there's no television of this. That's a house show. How's he dressed? Yeah, it was TV. Okay. Oh, How's the million dollar man dressed
1: on this show? In a, um,
0: a blazer, kind of like a silver
1: and black, silver and black blazer. Yep. Okay.
0: Um, there is video I- out there of you interviewing Dibiase on the podium Uh, He had just wrestled a match with Hulk Hogan, and it was Count Out. Why the hell were you there interviewing? Well, that
1: was back when I was the—that was post—that was post-August of, I think, shit. Um, I was a play-by-play guy in Houston. We we taped all the shows there because part of the deal— with houston and wwf was that we would do a houston specific television show and i was doing play-by-play and also the host of the show
0: uh he ends up uh wrestling and losing to the one-man gang on a few house shows before appearing on tv as the million dollar man i'm curious if he's coming in with this big push why is he losing to the gang on a few house shows is this a Vinceism to have him come in and lose early. I mean, I don't understand if he's coming in as a top guy. Why is he? And I know one man gang's over at this time, um, but help me understand the mentality behind. We've got this great gimmick for you. Go lose to one man gang.
1: Well, part of it, and I'm guessing at this point because I was not involved in it and I, uh, can I guess? I'm just,
0: huh? Can I guess? Sure. I would guess since he's coming in with this gimmick that people perceive as going to have a bunch of heat. Let's show the locker room that he's one of the boys he's not a prima donna and he obviously gets along good with one man gang they work together in texas let's let him lose the gang to show everybody that he's not going to be hogan too
1: well i would i would venture to guess that the markets that they worked were probably traditional either mid-south markets or places where dibiase had been over before as a baby face right So they probably brought him in as a baby face in that role and gang was being groomed at that time to go with Hogan. So that's probably, that's probably why.
0: So help me understand, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about this gimmick a lot uh, because it's one of the most over gimmicks in history. Would you agree with that Bruce?
1: God, yes.
0: When you hear Vince describe the gimmick, Let me hear what that sounds like. I know you told me a minute ago that Patterson was the first one to talk about it, but as you're producing some of these skits or as you're hearing from um, Vince about the character, I want you to kind of recreate the way Vince would describe this gimmick.
1: Well, hang on. Let 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 me try and do this a different way. Vince and I, at this time, are making a lot of trips back and forth from New York to Houston, trying to shore up everything between the WWF and the Houston Wrestling Office. And Vince has pitched, you know, the Million Dollar Man gimmick. We have started to produce the vignettes, what have you. And have I told, have I told the story about no, uh, the no. guy smoking in first class on the show yet? No, you have not. Okay. Then let me, let me tell it to you that way, yeah, that do it. where the light bulb went off on me and I truly got the million dollar man and the whole feeling behind it. So we, this is back 1987. There was still smoking on planes. The first class section sometimes would only be the first row or be two rows. The first row would be non-smoking. The second row would be smoking. So go figure. And Vince is notoriously anti-smoking and hates cigarette smoke and doesn't like uh, cigarettes anywhere around and what have you. And we're flying back from Houston back to New York we are seated in seats 1A and 1B in first class. That is a non-smoking section. However, seats 2A and 2B, directly behind us, is smoking. And as we take off and they clear whatever altitude they clear, the no-smoking sign turns off in the cabin and in the sections where you're allowed to smoke, now you can light up. And we're flying along, and the guy sitting back in 2B takes his cigarette out, lights a cigarette. And he starts to smoke his cigarette, and Vince turns around and goes, hey, pal, uh, I'll give you $100 to put that cigarette out. And the guy says, no, man, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm want to have my cigarette. You know, I'm, I'm in the smoking section. I want to have my cigarette. Give you 200 bucks, pal. Put the cigarette out. guy keeps smoking. Just says, look, I am I want to have my cigarette, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm fine. I paid for this. He goes, give you 500 bucks, pal. Put the cigarette out, all right? You um, The guy says, hey, man, I, I paid for my seat. I just want to smoke my cigarette. He goes, I'll pay for your seat, and I'll still give you another 500 bucks. You just put the cigarette out. And the guy finally just puts the cigarette out, and Vince is peeling off hundreds to give this guy money for putting his cigarette out. And I just looked down and go, oh, fuck, man. You are the million-dollar man. And that's when it, it, it all clicked on me, because it was, you know, everybody's got a price, pal. Goddamn. Doesn't matter. Everything's for sale, and Everybody's got a price For the million dollar man You understand now And it clicked But that was Vince in real life I mean that was real life shit That I mean Actually fucking happened But that, that was one of those surreal moments Where I'm sitting there And just like holy shit This really fucking happened and I would tell that story later, but that was the example. Whenever I did DiBiase vignettes, that was the example and how he did it. And it wasn't work. It wasn't a, uh, Hey, let, let's, you know, let's, let's show Bruce what I can do now. God damn it. It was no, Hey motherfucker, you're smoking. I don't want you to smoke. What's it going to take? You got a price, pal. And he got to the point where the guy just put his cigarette out because he didn't want to fuck with the crazy guy sitting in
0: 2B. Crazy. Crazy indeed. <laughs> uh, so what was it about DiBiase that made Vince think, this guy can do it?
1: Because Teddy was so fucking smooth, man. There's something about him. DiBiase has a has an aura. He, he just has a, a finesse when... Uh, Ted would walk into a bar even back in the day that son of a bitch would walk into a bar and every head in the place would turn because he looked like somebody he carried himself like somebody and he had that intangible it he was special he could deliver in the rain he could talk and he wasn't afraid of shit so you just you know when you, you, you say what was it? It was it. It was that it was that just intangible it that made Ted stand out. And then the bell rang and he it was awesome. delivered.
0: Yeah. Um so hypothetically, let's say things go a little different. And I know you're gonna say, Oh, I don't know, but I just want you to play along in freestyle. Let's say that when Ted is meeting with Crockett and he agrees to Luger money and he agrees to let him go to Japan, that Ted goes out to the ring that night, works his match. And when he comes back through the curtain, Crockett says, I'm going to give you everything you asked for, but I need you to sign right now. What if Ted had signed right then? Would somebody else have gotten the million dollar man gimmick or would Vince have just shelved it until DiBiase was available?
1: I think Vince would have shelved it until the right guy was available
0: venture a guess, if it wasn't DiBiase, just freestyle, play along, who would it have been? Who, may have, who could have been someone to fit? Because here's the thing, a lot of times you've got on the show here and denied that such a box of gimmicks exists, but in this particular case you really do have a gimmick and you're looking for the guy. So if it wasn't DiBiase, who might it have been?
1: Flair would have been perfect for it.
0: I think that's the obvious answer.
1: It's the only answer. Yeah, it. it, Well, uh, if it had been pre nineteen eighty five, Gino Hernandez. Well, there you go. But he had the Gino, and Gino Hernandez would have been a better million dollar man than Ted DiBiase because he was a million dollar man.
0: Just in the way he was arrogant and carried himself and behaved. Yes. Uh, Well, Rick would have been awesome as that, and it's often been rumored that SummerSlam 88, he was supposed to be the guy on the first brother love show on pay-per-view instead of Hacksaw Jim Duggan, had he jumped and DeBiase not came over a year prior, hypothetically, SummerSlam 88 could have been where we saw the debut of the million dollar man, Ric Flair on the brother love show. Could have been. Isn't that crazy how just a couple of things different happen like what if DiBiase really would have signed that night in fort worth and then they put him with flair uh he becomes one of the top heels flair has a falling out when the whole uh you know belt wcw all of that stuff happens and says i'm out of here DiBiase stays is the top guy and then DiBiase is the ww or nwa wcw champion and the million dollar man rick flair is on the brother love show
1: what a crazy world. But then I wouldn't have had my buddy to, to hang out with me and travel with me in my early days in WWF. Because DiBiase and I just moved from
0: one place to
1: another. And he was my traveling buddy up there, too. So DiBiase liked to party
0: once upon a time. Well, yeah.
1: Um, I mean, it's not a secret now. Ted's told his story all over the place. Ted was a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I had a black
1: day. Back in the day, Ted DiBiase and Brother Love knew how to have a good time.
0: Um, I know you're laughing at that going, fuck, you're boring as hell now. Oh, you are. People don't believe how boring you and I are in real life sometimes. Let's talk about some of the other skits, and then we're going to talk about something everybody wants to talk about. Uh, One of the other skits was uh, he buys his way into a public pool by bribing (laughs) the manager to kick all the kids out. And he uh, kicks all the kids out, and then he's got the pool all to himself. Did you shoot that in Dallas as well? Yes, we did. Uh, any memories about shooting that skit or the emergency room visit? The
1: it's funny. I didn't. I remember the paper cut in the limousine. I don't remember the emergency room itself, but I I remember vividly the swimming pool, the public swimming pool deal. We actually shot that at a public swimming pool, obviously. But the little kids up against the fence, that was just priceless. I remember afterwards, we're sitting there, and I'm looking at Joel, and I said, you know, for a, a guy with all this money, everybody's got a price you'd have thought that he might have picked a nicer fucking pool than
0: this piece of shit. I was thinking the same thing watching that. Like, I mean, who's swimming in that? Uh, he buys his way into a restaurant. He goes into a restaurant, there's no reservation, uh, hands the guy some money, takes somebody's table, has a table right away. That feels like a Vince McMahon move.
1: He taught Vince McMahon taught me that move, as a matter of fact.
0: It still works in
1: 2017. Goddamn, pal, go duke the fucking Mater D. What do you got on you? That's not going to get it. Goddamn, here. and Slip me a hundred and we'd get a table. But Vince taught me how to do that, too.
0: Uh, those guys pay attention to watches too. Um, he buys his way into the honeymoon suite and a booked hotel. Uh, anything stick out to you about the restaurant or the booked hotel? Any little funny antidotes you could pitch us about those two? The
1: the girl that played the part of the uh, bride in the honeymoon suite, <laughs> we didn't smarten her up to a lot other than, you know, that's going to happen and in one of she just thought said to DBS and go god what an asshole and we thought okay great this is going to work absolutely you know it was good times any other vignettes we shot, we shot that at the embassy suites in Dallas is it still there now it is um yes it is and it's still the it, i don't know if it's embassy suites maybe another suite hotel but it was the big pink embassy suites there in Dallas
0: uh, any other vignettes uh, stick out to you
1: that maybe we missed? Ooh, um, well, the the crazy thing about it is, is when Ted came in and we started having his TV matches and and he started wrestling on TV. The reaction wasn't one of heat, and they didn't hate him. We we did shit in the arenas where you'd have people come up and, and kiss his feet. Uh, Rob Van Dam is a fan.
0: Yeah. So let's, actually let's mention got that. in
1: and kicks his feet.
0: You're getting, uh, people to participate in silly stuff. Um, the most famous one is when you guys, uh, had a small black child on. Well, the okay, podium. but hang
1: on. Cause, cause I want to get to why we did that. Yes. Because we were doing it with real people and taking people out of the crowd and having them do shit and they would do things and Ted would pay them. Well, after a while, they start cheering DiBiase. Why not? He's giving people money. Wow, there you go. So it's like everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. Well, fuck yeah. Hey, here's my price. Okay, here you go. So he's paying people off and the, the psychology of it was really simple. What's there to hate, right? That's when we came up with the thing for the kid and the basketball. Who's that? What if, what if he doesn't pay off? What if they do what he says he's going to do or or, or they do what he asked them to do, or he fucks them out of it somehow, then they're going to hate him. And what if he does it to a kid, the senseless little kid?
0: So the thought was, Hey, it's not just enough to humiliate them because people are still cheering. They're still in,
1: they're still getting paid.
0: Yeah. So we've got to, we've got to screw them out of it. So we're not only now does he have a bunch of cash and likes to humiliate people. Um, but he's a dick too. He's greedy and, and, and he's, he's a liar and he's a cheat and he's a thief and blah, blah, blah.
1: We, we forgot the simplest ingredient of an asshole heel. They lie, they cheat, they steal. Right. So the, the time came, and we came up with the deal for the basketball. And I want to say all this came out of Vince's head, because he's warped. And the idea, you know, is Teddy's doing this thing. No, and no, it's no, like,
0: no, no, no. I'm going to need to hear Vince pitch this idea. In my head, he calls you at 2 in the morning <laughs> and says... Goddamn, pal, I got it.
1: Well, no, we're, we're sitting there and like, Teddy, here's what we're going to do. Pick a kid out. We'll get a nice little, nice little kid, innocent looking, about, I don't know, five, six, eight years old. You know, it doesn't matter. And you get him up, find the cutest little bastard you can find. And all he's got to do is bounce a basketball ten times. And you show him. You let him practice. Make sure he can do it. And we count along. And he gets one, two, three,
0: four, five, six.
1: six, And the whole crowd's behind him. And you get to eight, nine, and whoops. You kick the ball out from under his hands. Well, what happens when you don't do the job? You don't get job. The money. (laughs) And we're all like, that's fucking great, man. (laughs) And when he did it, and obviously the little kid doesn't know, kid thinks he's going to get $500 for bouncing a ball. Fuck, he does that every day. Right. And he gets nine, Teddy kicks the ball. Whoops. Well, kid, you know what they say? You don't do the job. You don't get the money. And the little kid starts crying, man. He gets down All because he and runs to his
0: mom. So the kid was not a plant. Oh,
1: 100% not a plant.
0: And the kid did not, nobody went and paid him after the fact.
1: Who said, well, okay. What? Yeah, sure.
0: Good. I'm, I've always wondered that. And I was like, I hope they still paid his family.
1: Okay. Goddamn. fucking. Mars.
0: Yeah, I got it.
1: Yes, we paid the little kid afterwards, but it was it was classic, man. He was crying and little tears down little face, and mom was just so disgusted with us.
0: <laughs> like, How can you do that? Like he's a heel,
1: he's a heel. I
0: so another skit you guys do. You call a kid up to do fifteen push-ups for three hundred dollars. The kid can only do ten. Uh, so Ted says you do your best, but doing your best isn't good enough for the million-dollar man. You don't get the money. Also not a plant? Nope. Uh, what about the woman on all fours who's told to bark like a dog for $300, which is basically a slow night at the Conradison. Instead of barking, though, uh, she keeps saying rough, so she doesn't get paid either. <laughs> to me, that's a rib, right? I mean, come on.
1: No, she she that one was um, a makeup artist that we had in that town.
0: Uh, and then of course, one time after a match, everybody has heard this story by now. He takes his boot off in the ring and calls a young fan into the ring to kiss his foot for money. And that fan became Rob Van Dam. Um, uh, and that was probably one of the earlier skits because he's still paying them for doing these embarrassing things. Right.
1: Right. Yes. That that was when we realized that, Hey man, now it's not working because they were happy shit, man. Everybody's raising their hand. Right.
0: Right. Um, when this is going on, this feels like a real big, I mean, heat-seeking segment. Was there ever any worry for Ted's safety? Or, I mean, this wasn't like a riotous thing, right?
1: No. No, I, I was debating whether or not to tell the story, but I won't. No, you um, can't do
0: that. You're just amongst your friends. Over a quarter million people aren't listening right now. It's just me and you. Go ahead.
1: Well, no. And, and and again, keep in mind this was... Uh, this was not obviously not factual or anything like that. It was, it was one of those crazy surreal moments we were doing media and it was just myself, Ted and Virgil. When this guy it was early morning at a radio station and the guy comes in, Ted and I get in the back of the limo and Virgil goes up to the front. Virgil would always ride up with the limo driver. When Virgil gets in the front seat. Ted and I are in the back. And this guy comes up to the limo and, and hands Ted something to sign. He says, "Hey, would you sign this for me?" He says, "Sure." So Ted signs it and hands it back to the guy. The guy hands it back to Ted. He says, "What do you think?" He says, "What's, what's that?" He says, well, we'll "Look at it." And it was a picture of a girl. And Ted says, um, "Nice. You know, here you go."
0: Oh, wait, a picture of a naked girl.
1: No, just a, just a picture of a girl. Okay, you know. And um, next thing I know, the guy like knocks the shit out of Ted, sitting in the limo. Wow! And he says, "That's that's my wife. You slept with my wife, you son of a bitch." And we're looking, he's like, "What well, did that just happen?" And we jump out, and Virgil, of course, Johnny on the spot wasn't there when. Million dollar man needed his bodyguard. And Virgil jumps out and grabs a guy and, and uh got a few punches in and, and Ted's like going, Hey man, nah, just you know leave him alone. He didn't he didn't hurt me, it just was like, What the hell? But there there was that kind of crazy shit that that would happen sometimes, and for some reason Teddy and I always found ourselves in some kind of crazy well, shit.
0: Hang on now, you're skipping a, a valuable part of the story. <laughs> did did Ted get them draws? no he had no idea who the hell it was well doesn't mean he didn't Not like you could be shown a picture of all of yours either and remember them all
1: so anyway there was this time <laughs>
0: <that> <laughs> i love this show. Uh, it
1: was hey, different time different place folks that was like as you said many many years ago and teddy has talked about his transgressions and And, and weaknesses and all that good stuff. And I love Theodore to death.
0: Well, let's talk about, um, you know, these vignettes, is there anything else that we can kind of, uh, put a bow on here?
1: No, I'm sure you'll think of something that'll make me come back to them, but, uh, they, they were a lot of fun. I mean, it was, it was one of those, it was my first, that was my first vignettes, uh, the WWF Joel, oh, you had just Joel started, Watts, right? I just, yeah, I just started and came up with Joel Watts and let's, I let's, always let's take loved a time out right Joel.
0: there. Joel Watts came up with you from Texas as well at the same time, right? Yes. Uh, tell everybody who's not familiar with Joel Watts, who that is.
1: Joel Watts is Bill Watts adopted son, Joel, and Joel did the television production for UWF in mid South. He was the director of the show. He also produced it. And Joel was, was responsible for a lot of those early Rock and Roll Express videos, the Freebird videos, and he did a lot of um, just cutting edge stuff. He was a great producer, very creative, and I I missed working with Joel. Man, he was he was a blast, and he we both came up at the same time in April of 1987, and then Joel left in January of '88. This is or almost, maybe even December of eighty-seven, he might have left.
0: I mean, really, process what a time in the business this is, and you've got Bill Watt's son leaving the territory, going to work for Vince McMahon, with one of the former office folks from Paul Bosch's territory, and they're bringing along the hottest free agent and they give him the million-dollar man gimmick, and Vince trusts these two guys to go put these vignettes together, that situation would never happen in the WWE in 2017.
1: Bizarro land, isn't
0: it? I mean, just like if we had to make an analogy and draw a comparison, like, you know, there's no scenario that Matt Hardy, who is obviously really over right now, is going to have an opportunity to go shoot his own stuff with Borash and David Sahadi for WWE and then it just be on TV and him being a top featured position just cold like that.
1: And, and add to that I was 24 years old.
0: Yeah, it just gets crazier the more you talk about it.
1: Joel, um, I guess Joel is about the same age. I'm trying to think. But yeah, we were we were kids.
0: Um, one of the other pieces of the act that we haven't talked about is the idea of stuffing hundred dollar bills into the mouth of his beaten, unconscious opponent. Whose idea was that? Do you recall? I
1: think it was Vince's, just kind of a touch. But I, I remember it came up in a production meeting. And I, I want to say that was Vince's idea.
0: Uh, when did uh, Ted's laugh first become part of the, the permanent piece of the act? Do you recall? Well, I know
1: whenever I would do shit with Ted, I would always emphasize the laugh. Because I would do the vignettes for Ted as Ted. Right. And so when I would do them, of course, I would always... Over overact and overemphasize and everybody's got a price but the million dollar man <laughs> and I would do it over the top for him so Ted would get to the point where he would accentuate the same way I would and then he would do the laugh uh, probably over the top at the end and then it just became such an asshole part of that character that it was a signature. And and the other important part that, that we kind of left out was the leeway that Ted had in real life. You know, you talk about danger. Was Ted ever in, in danger and things of that nature? Was that with that gimmick, Vince gave Ted the leeway that if he, if he was ever in a public place and needed to... Um, demonstrate that he was indeed the million dollar man. He had petty cash. He should do so. He had petty cash. Plus he had an American express that he could use, whatever it took to, if he needed to pay somebody off, if he needed to do something, you know, million dollar man didn't wait in line. Million dollar man flew first class, always had a stretch limo. Um, he would take that in. He would walk in with receipts and get paid that day at the house shows. So it was a great gimmick, man. <laughs> you know, he needed to pick up the tab at a bar. He picked it up.
0: And do you remember any sort of, uh, obviously the WWF's on fire here and this is Vince's personal idea. So he's all over it, but do you remember there ever being any pushback about, you know, we, we covered it before where Sonny would turn in receipts where she was having $90 breakfasts every day <laughs> and Jim Ross questioning her about it. That's yeah. a different time. And that's a different gimmick. It's not for business necessarily. Yeah, well, Ted didn't really abuse it.
1: So um, it was, yeah, it it wasn't something that he abused, and Vince was cool with it.
0: Uh, Well, let's talk about uh, somebody who we haven't yet discussed on the show here. Uh, And I've been waiting for this one, and you know what's coming. When is the decision made to put Virgil with the Million Dollar Man?
1: Oh, that was day one. I mean, that was that was right from the beginning because it was he had to have a manservant.
0: So, along with the idea was not only is he going to, we're going to do these vignettes and and we want you to spend lavishly and you're going to be uh, a super heel, rich asshole. But oh, by the way, you need a manservant too.
1: Correct, and, and I have a picture somewhere. That is positively priceless of Virgil. Because if you remember you back in those very first vignettes, he was wearing like the all gold and all silver skin tight suits. Yep. And we were ribbing him on the first day that you look like the FTD florist. (laughs) (laughs) All you needed were little wings on your head. So no shit, man. When we were doing the restaurant vignettes, right, right next door, was a florist and right outside the florist was the FTD man and Steve Taylor who was a photographer was shooting pictures and we said hey Berge, uh just just scoot back a little bit man move over here and, and uh, we just need to get a couple shots of you and we shot these great pictures of Virgil with the FTD florist that was absolutely priceless I have that somewhere but who knows where
0: um, lots of different rumors and innuendo about, uh, Virgil. Uh, Ted says that he first met Mike Jones in Vince's office and he thinks that one of the Samoans recommended him. Do you recall? Is that how that went down? He was trained by the Samoans or recommended by the Samoans. He was, he was trained by Alpha, and he worked as soul train Jones, uh, S T
1: Jones, soul train Jones.
0: Uh, Ted described Mike Jones as being uh, very uh, capable and able and loyal and would do anything asked of him. Uh, he had nothing but really, really nice things to say about him. But I know you're going to deny this, so let me just get it out of the way. How did you guys come up with the name Virgil?
1: Joel Watts actually came up with that name.
0: Uh, DeBiasi says that Bobby Heenan... Pitched it at dinner almost as a joke, but everybody loved it, and it stuck. Now, what's your recollection of how Joel Watts came up with it?
1: We're sitting trying to come up with a uh, name for the manservant, and Joel pitched Virgil.
0: And everybody erupts in laughter?
1: What's funny about that?
0: How many other Virgils do you know?
1: Didn't didn't he look like a
0: Virgil? I don't know what a Virgil looks like, baby. He looked like... DiBiase's bodyguard manservant. Listen, fucker. Why won't you just admit this is a rib?
1: Look, ribs rule, and ribs still rule, and there's a lot of ribomania going on. Well, that's not a rib.
0: How can you sit there and say that this is not a rib? There's one Virgil known in wrestling, before he was given this Ab- name.
1: No, there was a Dusty known in wrestling.
0: Okay. Ever why are you doing this?
1: It was a good name. It
0: worked. What would another name of We need we needed What were the other name. names that were suggested?
1: Oh God, I don't know. Leroy. Racist. No, you asked me that is a ser- that is honest to God, one of the names that was suggested.
0: Talk me through Virgil.
1: Uh, Joel mentioned it. People liked it. So he went with it. Same the same way we came up with bastion booger, like an idiot. I said, what about bastion booger? I love it. And (laughs) all of a sudden had a bastion booger on our hands.
0: There's, um, sometimes you just say shit and it sticks. I want you to say, I want you to get in that microphone that you've tried to eat three times so far today. And I want you to say, I've done
1: better today, haven't
0: I? You have. Yeah. Clearly, okay. clearly, for the record, Virgil was not a rib. I want you to lie to our audience right now. The Why name
1: to light to our audience.
0: Naming Mike Jones Virgil, the manservant for the Million Dollar Man, was not a rib. Go ahead, do it. Virgil's not
1: a rib. He was a manservant for Teddy Biasi.
0: Naming him Virgil, not a rib on Dusty Roads. Something to wrestle with, folks. All right, here's something else to wrestle with. Message board BS. (laughs) I can't believe I'm even going to say this.
1: Come on, go ahead.
0: Uh, Virgil was known amongst the boys for something else. I don't know another way to say that. This feels really weird to even talk about, but... I got multiple DMs. Hey, you're going to ask about uh
1: Virgil's Porter Wagner? <laughs>
0: Virgil's gimmick? Uh, you got any stories about Virgil's gimmick?
1: I'm not going to sit here and talk about Virgil's gimmick on our podcast, but it was huge. <laughs> <laughs> Probably still is, I don't know.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Um did Pat Yo-ge. Pat- Uh, where was Pat Patterson on Virgil? Was he a fan?
1: Uh, I guess so. I think everybody was a fan of Virgil, he did a good job.
0: All righty then. Uh, Dibiase would go on to get a few count out wins over Hulk on the house shows. And uh, we referenced one of those interview segments with Bruce earlier. It is on YouTube if you'd like to check it out. Uh and then towards the end of eighty seven, so this is uh it makes the debut in May of eighty seven, so through the summer we start to really get this over. But I'm curious because Survivor Series uh nineteen eighty seven happens. And Davey, is not on the card. And I thought that was weird that this is the first non WrestleMania pay-per-view. It's just a few months after he's brought in, uh, and he's not there, uh, in the aftermath, of course, we would set up what we're really here to talk about. Um, uh, probably one of the more defining moments in Ted's career, but why wasn't he figured in the survivor series 87? Does that ring a bell? Do you, do you know why?
1: No, it really doesn't. I, I don't remember.
0: It's the very first Survivor Series. It's in Richfield. Um, and I can't believe this is a thing. 21,000 people there. And one of the more over gimmicks that's, you know, in the main event position, it's not there. And I, I was fascinated by that. Uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, what they set up is something we're going to talk about in long form at some point. Uh, but the Million Dollar Man acquires Andre the Giant's contract from Bobby the Brain Heenan. Uh, And then sets Andre up to win the WWF world title from Hulk Hogan and then just give it to him. And on what is probably one of the most famous gimmicks uh, or or finishes or angles or concepts of anything ever in wrestling uh, is what they do on the main event here uh, that happens February 5th, 1988 on the NBC network. We're going to cover that show in great detail. This is just so everybody is kind of on the same page. Uh, this is where uh, Hogan loses the belt to Andre the Giant. Andre then awards the belt, which he calls the Tag Team Championship to Ted DiBiase. And I
1: think in French there was a, a translation problem there.
0: And they do this with the brand new uh, what um, belt fan Dan, Leather by Dan, would call the Winged Eagle Belt. Uh, which had just made its debut on this particular show. Uh, And and they do a spot here where Hogan wasn't really pinned. There was a second referee, an evil referee, and it's revealed that there are two identical twins. And, of course, the WWF spins it that the million-dollar man must have paid to have reconstructive plastic surgery on this other referee's face, which is just genius, especially for 1988, and we're going to explore that in long form, another time. Uh, But just real quick here, let's touch on this. Whose idea was this angle, and uh, did everybody know this was fucking gold right away?
1: As far as I know, it was Vince's idea. I didn't even know the finish that night, and I was at the gorilla position timing the show out. And you didn't know? Nope. Vince asked me if I wanted to know what the finish was, and I said, nope. Does Does it matter? He said, nope. And I didn't want to know.
0: So was this live? Yes. Live, live. Um, Your memories of Andre calling the belt the tag team championship?
1: I remember that vividly. (laughs) Because all he had to get out was, I surrender the championship. That's what we wanted him to get out. Right. Um,
0: But, yeah. Uh, That's Andre. Andre is obviously physically limited at this point. Uh, So there's lots of physicality uh, with Ted and Virgil. Uh, Of course, Hulk beats them both up. Um, (laughs) I I just love. Hogan has to pose, pal. Yeah, there you go. Hogan must pose. Um, Do you remember which ref was actually in the ring? I don't remember off the top of my head. I haven't watched this in years. Was it Dave or Earl Hebner? Earl. Uh, so this is awesome. Uh, maybe one of the best angles ever. We'll, we'll get to it soon enough. In the following days at house shows, uh, was wearing the belt and was announced as the WWF champion. And he even defended the title against Bam Bam Bigelow In another match. He teamed with Andre to wrestle Hogan and Bigelow. Uh, and he wore the belt that night and was announced as the WWF world champion. And this is all built up, uh, to set up WrestleMania four, uh, which we're obviously going to cover here. Uh, but before we get too deep into this was the plan at this point, when you do this angle, always to set up a tournament for WrestleMania four, like w- when, when this match goes down. The plan is this is going to set up a tournament.
1: Yeah, the plan, the plan was all the way back, even before, um, survivor series to set up a tournament for WrestleMania four.
0: Um, Dibiase believes the rumor that we've all heard for years and years and years, which we've addressed in an earlier show, but we should just cover it again now here, uh, because it's so critical to the rest of the story. That the Macho Man was supposed to become the Intercontinental title holder. Honky Tonk Man did not want to lose it to him on Saturday night's main event. So instead, they kept that belt on Honky. And to pacify Macho Man, they thrust him into what would have been DiBiase's spot. Winning the world title at WrestleMania four in this tournament. And DiBiase has gone on record and said, I was told... I was winning the belt at WrestleMania. Uh, And then he was told um, that the million-dollar belt, you know, was created because why would the million-dollar man need that belt when he could just create his own? Much nicer, much more expensive, much more lavish belt. But, of course, in the business, you know, the belt is a status symbol that you're the top guy. And he felt like he was given that million-dollar belt just to pacify him for not being world champion. So what's real? What happened? Clear up the rumor and innuendo about all things WrestleMania Four.
1: Well, as I've said before, I'm sure that Ted was definitely considered for that, but the WWF was traditionally a babyface territory, and they always had babyface champions, and I don't think that Vince wanted to Experiment with it at that time, and you know he kind of had the perfect storm of everything else going on. The decision was made to be Randy, but the, in my opinion, I think that the million dollar belt for heat purposes of Ted going around with his own championship, creating his own championship, was more heat for the million dollar man, and did more for that character than being the WWF champion. And I do believe that.
0: Well, I, I don't guess you can argue that because he really did get it over and, it, and it, it worked. Do you believe that Ted was told he was going to be the WDF champion or do you think Dave full of it there?
1: He may have been told that he may have been told that, hey, we're thinking about putting the championship on you. But I think that sometimes guys hear what they want to hear and somebody's saying, hey, we're thinking about. Maybe uh, putting the championship on you. The, they hear, "Hey, we're going to put the title on you."
0: Did you hear he was going to be champ? Never. When did you hear that the plan was Macho? Do you remember?
1: After after February.
0: Post Market Square Arena, double referee. Andre wins the belt, gives it to DiBiase. That's when you hear Macho Man's going to get it.
1: Yep. That's about, time, that's about the right time frame. But I knew it wasn't going to be Ted. What, why? And hence, the, the, the whole idea, and even the whole idea behind WrestleMania, frankly, was the rubber match with Hulk and Andre. The idea was WrestleMania 3, Hogan goes over, he beats Andre. Survivor Series, Andre beats Hogan. And then you have... Uh, the match in February, the main event, the live match where the title is held up, you go to uh, WrestleMania and you do it again so that you can come back, you know, full circle and be able to get one where Hogan finally triumphs again and saves the day. But Andre's health wasn't the best. And it just the the, the attraction, I think, it kind of lost its appeal and if you were to ask me, you say, well, goddamn, how does that lose its appeal? I, to me, it lost its appeal by Andre not beating Hogan at Survivor Series by pinning him one, two, three, and beating him and leaving with his hand up, and Hogan decimated at Survivor Series. But that's just the old school in me, difference of opinion. I made my case and was told Hogan had to pose.
0: I... Uh... I struggle with the timeline a little bit here because the Intercontinental match that people remember from Saturday night's main event with Savage and Honky Talk was in October of eighty seven. And you're saying that in February. I'm
1: saying when I knew that Randy was gonna be the guy was February.
0: Okay. Um if DBI is it fair to say that DBAC in late 87, early 88, is the most overheal? Yes. Why wouldn't the natural deal be DiBiase just keep the belt there, and then they set up WrestleMania 4, you know, fuck this tournament, and just do DiBiase Hogan on top?
1: Well, that probably would have made a lot of sense. But again, that's not the way that that territory had traditionally ever been booked. You, you know,
0: I came from... Now, let me be clear here. I know you're saying it's a babyface territory. I'm saying let DiBiase keep the belt and then lose it at WrestleMania. I
1: I hear what you're saying. But Vince didn't see it that way. Vince saw that you always had to have the big babyface defending the title. Not now, winning, not in order chasing. to get to a new babyface champion, you got to beat him at some fucking point, right? So, yes, it would have made sense that, and and frankly, would have been, in my opinion, a much stronger attraction, right? But Vince had in his head he wanted to get Hogan Andre again. That was that was the thinking behind it. At that point, the championship was almost secondary to getting another WrestleMania one-on-one Hogan and Andre.
0: Is there any truth to speculation that Hogan says no job to DiBiase here? No. Um, I'm just kind of curious what happens... To DiBiase here in your perspective, because he's in the main event of WrestleMania 4. He loses to Macho Man. They get their big baby face moment we've talked about before. Uh, Hogan, Savage, Miss Elizabeth. Macho Man's the champ. We go into SummerSlam 88. It's the Mega Bucks versus the Mega Powers. It's uh, Andre and DiBiase again, main eventing the very first SummerSlam. So it's a big deal. Uh, so DiBiase still figured in, in a big way. And then we go to Survivor Series and at Survivor Series that year, again, DiBiase is in the main event. It's the mega powers, uh, in the main event. And on the opposite side, uh, we've got, uh, the twin towers, Ted DiBiase, Haku and cockadoodle do man. But then this starts to get interesting to me. We go to 89 and... We get to the Royal Rumble. It's the very end of the Royal Rumble. DiBiase is the last person eliminated, and he's eliminated by Big John Studd, who then leaves the promotion later that year. What's the thought in not having DiBiase win the Rumble? Why go Big John Studd in in January of eighty nine?
1: Because Vince saw big things for Big John Studd. He
0: saw stud as a top baby face. All right. We'll just go with that for a minute and ignore well, that. Fact- I mean,
1: that's what, that's what he saw. And then he, he came in and, um, God, we did vignettes with, with John, man, at Vince's house with all the heavy lifting and shit. And John came in and, uh, was working with a heel Andre and Andre hated him. And Andre would stand on his hair and stand on him and just slap him down And who could talk to Andre? I remember the the night, I want to say it was Omaha. I think it was Omaha. I remember John walking in and saying, Hey, Bruce, is Vince in his office? Yeah, walking in and walking out and saying, Hey, man, it's great working with you. I hope to see you down the road. And walked out.
0: That was just, but there were big things. I mean, Vince saw big things with Stud. That was June of eighty nine when he walks out over what he felt were poor payoffs. Is that the same thing you heard?
1: Yeah, it was the abuse from Andre. Okay. It was he just he was getting the shit beat out of him every night. Now imagine that. You know, here's a a giant of a man who's being manhandled by another giant.
0: So you're so you're disputing that it was Poor payoffs at all. You just strictly it was Andre.
1: I'm telling you the main reason for Stud leaving was he did not want to work with Andre, and he was getting the shit beat out of him every night, and there was nothing he could do about it. And he wanted to work with somebody else and do something else, and Vince I don't I don't know what their conversation was, but
0: Did did you ever have a conversation with Andre about why he disliked Stud? Hell no. Nobody knows. It's one of those mysteries that we'll never know.
1: No, there's no mystery to it. Andre didn't like any big guys. Yeah, I get that. Andre didn't like anybody that threatened the throne.
0: So he's just, don't you think that's a little weird that Andre is revered by fans online for quote unquote protecting his spot, but Hogan is just shit on routinely for doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, there, There may be a drone flying over us right now that we just heard on microphone. Probably so. Uh I wonder if it's from Stanford. Uh so here's my question. Bastard. He goes He uh he being. It may be. What no, what's what's his name? What's the drone's name?
1: Oh Vanguard one. It may be Vanguard two.
0: Uh, hell? He he's only out on Thursday nights. So we're not taping on Thursday. Ah, uh, I got you. Uh WrestleMania five. So let's run through this. We just kinda ran through, you know, main event, WrestleMania four. Main event SummerSlam eighty eight. Uh, main event survivor series, uh, last guy eliminated from the Royal Rumble 89, now we're at WrestleMania five, he's on the third match on the card. And does a double count out with Brutus, the barber beefcake. Yeah. What happened? Well, nothing. I mean, he can't be on
1: top the whole time. He had a great run. It, it cycles. You got to cool him off a little bit to heat him up
0: again. That sounds like the biggest bunch of bullshit answer I've ever heard. Just, that's the way you do it. You oh, can't no, okay, keep them okay. hot. I mean, got you can it, have the it, same guys it. in the main event every show. Are you fucking seriously saying that right now? I'm looking at all my results from 88-89. I don't see Hogan fucking working the third match anywhere. He can't stay hot all the time. He can't well, be in the main event He's the top event baby event the face of the top money drawer. He's the baby face. He's the baby face that you feed. I see why Meltzer hates your fucking ass. You just can't tell the truth for nothing.
1: I'm telling you the truth. You just don't want to accept the truth. That's what's wrong with you and your goddamn
0: media-loving, fucking dirt sheet writers. Cool story. Uh, SummerSlam '89 uh, main event this time is Hogan and Beefcake against Savage and Zeus. Uh, right before that is DiBiase defeating Jimmy Snuka by countout. There is a noticeable dip here to me for Dibiase's positioning on the card. Can you give me anything or are you just going to argue oh, about it? Oh, dude,
1: all? I'll even go back. Well, again, you're talking about Snookin. Snook and at the time was another one. Vince was looking to bring back, and Jimmy was a huge draw, and he saw Jimmy is coming back and making a major splash again. So it's to look at it again, hindsight's 2020, 20, and you look at it, go, oh, goddamn, you know, that that didn't work. But when they were booking it and putting it in that place, it was is a way to okay, Jimmy's coming back. Jimmy was this major draw and this major attraction for Vince and his dad for many, many years. So let's bring him back. You put him in with a guy like DiBiase to get him over. And didn't work, Jimmy. We didn't have the Jimmy Snuka from 1984. So it didn't work. Uh,
0: Survivor Series 1989. Uh, He's at least figured into a prominent match here. It's the Hulkamaniacs with Hulk Hogan, Demolition, Axe, and Smash as Babyfaces, and Jake the Snake Roberts defeating the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, the Powers of Pain, of Warlord and Barbarian, and Zeus. Um... Of course, he goes to, he being DiBiase, uh, loses with a leg drop to Hulk Hogan and the survivor of the match is Hulk Hogan. This is their only pay-per-view match like this. I find that weird that this is a guy that, you know, supposedly tells Ted, Hey man, it's time for me to pay you back for what you did for me in 79. But then their only time they really worked together is here.
1: Uh, 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 help me understand that. Well, no, they, they worked all over the place in 87 and 88 I in house me- shows, and they had a house show program. But the business was different at the time. You had, again, in 87, you only had WrestleMania and Survivor Series. In 88, we went to three. 84, you know, they added the Rumble it wasn't the the proliferation of pay-per-views that you have now, and even at four pay-per-views a year, that was tried to be judicious and tried to mix those up as much as possible and make them different than the live event business and the house shows. Um, tried to have a little bit different attraction. So what was going on in the house shows wasn't always. What they were building to on pay-per-views, it was kind of running two different businesses sometimes. The, so uh, it was there was there was a there was a concentration. It was just different. It was a different business model at the time.
0: Uh, Royal Rumble nineteen ninety. Uh, he set he being DBI pronouns pal uh, sets a new God damn it pronouns <laughs> sets a new record. Uh, in the Royal Rumble lasting 44 minutes and 47 seconds. So, uh, he's still, you know, kind of getting heated back up or so it would seem. Uh, and then we're back for WrestleMania six. And, uh, this is a match that Ted has said in his opinion, uh, was his very favorite, uh, WrestleMania match. He worked against Jake, the snake Roberts, and it was a singles match for the million dollar championship, which we're going to cover in a moment. Uh, And this had one of the very best promos, I think, from this era uh, with Jake the Snake cutting a phenomenal pay-per-view promo. Uh, If you haven't seen it, go out of your way. Jake the Snake, WrestleMania six promo uh, out of the park. I find it curious that through Ted's entire run, the match he hangs on to as being his best WrestleMania match was with Jake the Snake Roberts. Why do you think that would have been? Probably
1: artistically working with Jake and just the story they had behind that whole match and their history in the business, both second generation guys. They both spent a lot of time together in mid South and kind of coming up through the ranks. But I think for both guys, I think they would consider the other a great opponent and Jake at that time man was red hot. And he's just a red hot baby face and and Ted being a a top heel it it all worked it just jived.
0: Well, it's uh it's something that I'm still kind of struggling with because it feels like the booking is is similar to today where you hear guys these days say that there's kind of 50-50 booking and they're hot and they're cold, they're hot and they're cold and that's what it feels like through this period with Ted for me, where he's in the main events and in the next pay-per-view, not so much Uh, for most of the, let's circle back to right after Wrestlemania 4, leading into Wrestlemania 4 he worked uh, a match with Macho Man on on a Saturday night's main event Um, he goes on uh, in the Wrestlemania tournament you know, people have covered this and I'm sure we will in great detail in this Wrestlemania 4 tournament one day, but uh, he beats hacksaw, Jim Duggan, uh, his old rival from mid South. He beats Don Morocco. Uh, and then of course, uh, he gets a bye into the finals where eventually, and that was because Hogan and Andre went to a double DQ. Um, and then of course he ultimately loses to Hogan, uh, coming out of WrestleMania four, he works with Don Morocco at Saturday night's main event. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about Don Morocco again. You got any good Don Morocco stories? <laughs> Uh,
1: you know, Don Morocco was one of the guys that Vince thought about for the Brother Love gimmick when I pitched it.
0: Really? Yeah. Well,
1: I like it. I thought don't... Donnie could pull that off and would be a great character for Morocco.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll cover that on a Brother Love episode. We should circle back to that. We'll never get voted. Never. It's lost three never. times now. Uh, no, it hadn't been on three times. It has. Prior to uh, SummerSlam 88... Uh, Ventura was the special guest referee for that mega powers, mega bucks steal. And in storyline, DiBiase was attempting to buy off Jesse Ventura. Uh, wh- whose idea was it to insert Jesse Ventura as a special guest referee there?
1: Probably Vince.
0: Vince well, or Pat. Why do you think Ventura was was the right pick for that?
1: Well, Jesse had done Predator and he had done the running man. So jesse was our own version of of the rock at the time (laughs) if you were his closest thing we had to it right and be able to utilize jesse in a little different role jesse was a controversial character great character
0: why not uh, use
1: him for something use him for something more than color
0: sure Uh, after SummerSlam, uh before we transition into some other pay-per-views this is back in 88 still Uh, DiBiase purchases Hercules' contract from Bobby Heenan to be his personal slave. And while Hercules was confronting Heenan about it, DiBiase hit him in the back with a briefcase. They start yelling, uh, and he starts slapping him. And then, of course, Hercules makes the comeback. Uh, This kind of came out of nowhere and was obviously an instant babyface turn for Hercules. What was the thinking here in trying to turn Herc?
1: Something new, something different, and we'd pretty much run the course with Hercules as a heel, and Vince wanted to give him a shot as a, as a babyface. So you put him with a top guy like DiBiase and, and do the turn with Heenan, uh, and of course you put him in light blue tights so then everybody knows he's a babyface.
0: Uh, right after Survivor Series, uh, I'm going to let that go. It was awesome, by the way. we got to get that. Uh, right after Survivor Series uh, 88, uh, they have a battle for freedom match on Saturday night's main event. Where Hercules wrestles Virgil uh, with a stipulation that if... He, free at
1: last! Free last.
0: <laughs> the stipulation... That if Hercules lost the match, he would be considered Deviazi's personal property. There's just a lot wrong with that. Whose idea was this? Who booked this shit?
1: Uh, that would be Vincent Pat.
0: Uh, are you ever going to take credit for any bad idea on this show, or is this just PassTheBuck.com? This was
1: before I was. This was before I was in the booking. At this point, I'm just doing TV and doing Brother Love.
0: I do want to ask a question about Survivor Series '88 because you hear this criticism about Raw all the time now. Uh, during the DiBiase's match, he pins Hercules with a schoolboy after a destruction or a distraction, rather. From
1: more <laughs> destruction yeah. of careers, whatever.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what we're getting to. Uh, so DiBiase pins Herc with a schoolboy after a distraction from Virgil. And 22 seconds later, Savage pins DiBiase with the exact same schoolboy, which I find hilarious. People complain now, you know, about the number of finishes we see. Even back in 88, they were 22 seconds apart.
1: Got to get it in, pal. Get your time in.
0: Um, So, in the 89 Rumble, this is the stuff I really liked you guys did here. Uh, DeBiase purchases the number 30 from McKeem. And it almost works out, of course. We just talked a minute ago that... It came down to himself and big John stud. That's a brilliant idea for the million dollar man to buy the number 30. Uh, whose idea was that? that that's oh, well, if it was brilliant, then it was mine. There no. you go. <laughs> there you go. I want, I want to say it's Patrick's. Um, after, you know, getting through the Royal rumble, Uh, On February 3rd, on the main event, uh, DiBiase is back working with Hercules. He defeats Hercules there, of course. And then here's where we need to get to. We've been talking about this a little bit without going into great detail, but this is what a lot of people want to hear about. On the February 11th edition of Superstars of Wrestling, a vignette was done of Ted going into the Betteridge Jewelry Store in Greenwich, Connecticut, and telling the owner, Terry, that he wants to make him a belt. This is a real jewelry store and they really did make the belt. As far as I know, Uh, you were involved in this process. Uh, Bruce, tell me about this million dollar belt. Whose idea is this? When do you first hear about it? Do you think, Oh, this is ridiculous or is it something? Everybody's all over right away.
1: God, I got to tell you, I love the idea. It was, it fit DiBiase and I just love the idea. If you can't, Win them, and what better way to display your wealth as the million dollar man? If you can't win a championship, then buy it. Right, and then buy your own championship. (laughs) And he makes the rules, and he keeps it by hook or crook, no matter what he does. But Terry Betteridge, uh, Betteridge Jewelers on Greenwich Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, If you have a shitload of money to drop, go give Terry a uh, visit. Tell the Bruce Pritchard Brother Love sent you. But a beautiful, beautiful jewelry shop, and Terry Betteridge is a world-renowned jeweler. I want to say he's a second-generation jeweler, as a matter of fact, but Terry used to bring uh, jewelry to the office for Vince. Around Christmas time and shit, you know, when Vince would be Christmas shopping, that's how he would Christmas shop. Terry would bring in jewelry and Vince would go, I'll take that and that and that and um, that. Quite fascinating. So they drew up this million dollar bill and Terry was going to make it for us. And DiBiase and I went to go shoot the initial vignette that you just mentioned where we went in to order the bill and Terry is bragging about how he has, has started the, this beautiful belt and how great it's going to be. It's 18-karat uh, gold, and it's got diamonds in it, and it's this beautiful thing, and he shows it to us. Ted and I look at each other like, ruh roll because you've seen the million-dollar belt. I'm right. sure all of our listeners have seen the million-dollar belt. Well, if you look at the... Not the middle plate, right? Like the big dollar sign in, in diamonds, right? Or the two side plates right next to it that are uh, smaller dollar signs with diamonds. But if you look at the little dollar signs along the edge that kind of work as the, the leather wraparound of the belt, right? Well, that was the size of the middle belt. Of the middle plate,
0: the side, the little side plates, the little side plates that, that
1: size is how big Terry had made the centerpiece. And we were like, Oh shit, this isn't going to work because it looked, it kind of looked like one of those belts Elvis would wear on his Vegas show. You know, when he got into the white leather. Yeah. Yeah. And immediately called Vince. and said, hey, man, this this isn't going to work. And we got Terry on the phone, and we brought a – I forget what belt we brought over. It was either one of the WWF championship belts or uh, an Intercontinental. But just to give him a size reference, because he had no frame of reference. He's thinking belt. And he's thinking grandiose, so he's thinking Elvis belt, you know, a big belt buckle like that. Uh, So we had (laughs) – we had to push the the debut date of the million dollar belt back a few weeks to to allow him time to make the the three centerpieces much much larger. And there were actual diamonds in that belt.
0: Okay. Um, so in another skit, you know, there's I guess three. Is that right? Three visits. Um,
1: okay. Order it. What's the progress? And then the unveiling.
0: There you go. And so he says it, it's not good enough. He wants more diamonds. He wants solid gold. And then the next time he goes, uh, it's on Superstars. He returns to pick up the belt and he walks in, throws his arm in, in the air, and he's got on a Dracula cape, which is really yeah, I, weird. I, yeah. Uh, whose idea was a to of the Dollar Man wear a cape? Well, <laughs> um, how does this happen? I saw
1: Vince had this cape. And so I borrowed the cape and thought Wait, wait, wait. Wouldn't wait, it be wait. great if you like went in and threw the cape like over your shoulder and shit and you had a cape? Hang it on. just worked. He's a million dollar man.
0: Hang on, hang on, hang on. This is Vince McMahon's personal fucking cape. It was, yeah. Why does Vince
1: Vince have a, the Vince cape? also had the, you know that remember that full length uh it wasn't mink, but the full-length fur coat that DiBiase wore and some of the vignettes and shit. That was Vince's? That was Vince's, too, yeah. Why did Vince have a cape? Doesn't every millionaire have a cape? I don't know, man. I'm not a millionaire. I don't have a cape, but I thought every millionaire had a cape, so I thought the million-dollar man should have a cape. Wow.
0: So they don't show the belt uh, as he's We didn't here. show the belt. Because
1: there was no belt to show at that time, we we put uh, gold cups in different articles underneath that to make it look like there was something there. But the reason we didn't show it is we didn't have it.
0: So he actually debuts the the million dollar belt on what show? Do you remember? That would be the Brother Love show, uh, and it was the first. You can do it, do it on the Big Show, man. I like it. It's the first time it's seen on camera. Uh, and prior to this, uh, DiBiase was revealed as being Brother Love's mysterious benefactor. Uh, how did that come about? And uh, how how much exactly did the Million Dollar Man contribute to uh, your Love Ministries?
1: About uh, four of the rings on Brother Love's fingers were of the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Uh, I'd use his watch from time to time. Um, sometimes my watch would cockadoodle do, but uh yeah, he was a great benefactor, and he had to prove that in the bars at night to <laughs> be able to make sure that brother Love was properly hydrated.
0: so let's talk about uh the belt a little bit. I know you say this thing has real diamonds. I'm of the impression. That the real diamonds are actually on the back, and what's on the front is all CZs. True or false?
1: Conrad, Conrad, Conrad. The belt has real diamonds in the damn thing,
0: okay? So all the stones on the front of the belt are diamonds. I didn't say that, Conrad. I I just said that there are diamonds, but they're on the back, and that the majority of what we see that you guys have portrayed as diamonds are actually CZs.
1: Well, as my good friend I.W. Marks used to say, he used to call them um, PZs, pubic zirconias. But yeah, the diamonds are on the back. The real diamonds are on the back.
0: Thank you set. for, thank you for set in the Set in the leather on the back. There's leather on the back?
1: Yes, brown leather.
0: What else can you tell us about this belt we've all heard so much about? It costs a lot of money. Nope. I'm not going to let you get away with that. I need to know. Well,
1: I'm not going to tell you the figure.
0: We're not talking about what a guy's fucking payoff was. It's not personal income, you motherfucker. How much did this belt cost? It
1: costs a lot. I want to say it was it was close to fifty grand.
0: I was going to guess forty. So, uh, and what, yeah, well, you obviously haven't shopped in Terry Betteridge's jewelers. So, yeah, what you're paying for is who's making it, where they're making it. Um, oh, and, shit! and that it's totally custom, but this <clears> thing is not even, it's not solid gold. Obviously it's not filled with real diamonds. Why is it so expensive? Cause it was custom made and it was gold, but not solid. It's just plated. No,
1: it's plated gold. Yeah.
0: But I'm just saying you could plate that in gold for way, way less than that. And if those aren't really diamonds and they're just CZs.
1: He had a world class jeweler design it and and do it. Yeah. I mean that
0: that's what a... that's what dude, that's what it costs. But do you realize how ridiculous that sounds? Man, you had a world class jeweler make this make this belt out of fake golden diamonds.
1: Well, you want a world class designer to design shit, it costs money.
0: But shouldn't you actually use world class materials?
1: He did. It was beautiful leather. I mean, it was it was nice.
0: <laughs> leather. Uh, there's rumor and innuendo that the WWE still has this belt and that it's in a safe in Stamford. Where did you last see the belt?
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, there's, um, I don't, I don't know if they got it back or not, but oh. I know that when Teddy left, he gave the belt. To a member of the ring crew. And sometime after that, Linda, because it was an expensive belt, uh, Linda called Ted and asked him to please send the belt back. Right. Ted said, I do not have the belt. I gave it to someone on the ring crew to take back with them to Stanford. She said, well, who'd you give it to? And he, I don't know if he knew the name or, or what, but. Uh, they did some investigating. No one could find the goddamn belt. So she called Ted again. She said, Ted, um, don't mean to be, but it's an expensive belt. You were the last one to be seen with it. We really need you to send it back if you have it. And Teddy was adamant he did not have it and that he had given it to a ring crew. So I don't know if they ever found it or not. I know Ted has is, is told me. In private, that he did not have it, that he had given, he told me the same story. I mean, he's never wavered on his story, and I believe him because Ted's not the kind of guy to to do that. And especially if he was asked, he would have given it back if he had it. Um, maybe they did find it, maybe in a safe. I, I don't really know, to be honest with you.
0: Uh, ben Brown is the WWE archivist, and uh, Ben listens to the show. Ben, if you're listening. Tweet, he would a, know. tweet a picture of this belt at the show, if you know where it is. Please, kind sir. Uh, you teased us with us last week, so let's hear it. We want to hear about the time you lost the million-dollar belt.
1: Well, we had been in maybe Hartford, Connecticut, maybe Hartford, maybe Providence, and we finished up there, and this is We. Uh, myself and Ted DiBiase, and we were heading to Boston. Um, we, the, it was like the last. It, it was probably Providence because we were going to fly to ball. Bo- we were going to Boston to fly out. He was going to fly out from Boston, and I was driving back to Connecticut. So wherever the hell we were, we were. Anyway, we get to Boston, and we're in a a, a Ford Bronco. So we have our bags in the back of the Bronco. We go to Chinatown, and we go to our favorite little restaurant there in Chinatown, and we have uh, some great food, a lot of adult beverages. And we come out, and it's about 2 o'clock in the morning. And we're walking down a side street. we, were, we had been parked on the street. And as we're walking down uh, the side street, we're getting closer to the car and this guy comes around the corner from a building. It you was know, like apartments and, and, uh, uh, office buildings and shit, but there's nothing, you know, there's no activity cause you're in Chinatown and there's other than the restaurant, there's nothing open. And this guy comes walking towards us and we see him and we're coming up on the, uh, car on the Bronco and we look and the window is bashed in on the Bronco. The side window is bashed in. There's glass broken glass all over the ground and we look and we go, Oh shit. We open up the door and we look and our bags are gone. Someone ripped us off and we look up and this guy's still walking towards us. And he's got his arms outstretched. Kind of like, you know, hey. And he looks and he says, Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Let's make a deal. And we're looking at each other like, holy shit. Somebody saw us arrive, broke into the car, stole our shit now this guy wants to sell it back to us and he gets closer and he gets closer and it's dark out it's two o'clock in the morning as he gets closer he looks around and he looks and he sees all the uh broken glass on the ground and sees the things uh been broken into we've got the back door open and he looks and he goes Oh, shit, man. Hey, no, no, shit. I didn't do that, man. Hey, I just wanted an autograph. I saw you come out of the restaurant, man. And the guy takes turns around and takes off running. So we're like, This is the weirdest fucking night. You know, what the hell? And so we start going through the car and shit, and Ted looks at me and says, Hey, man, the belt's not here. The belt was carried in a separate gold Halliburton everywhere we went. And we're going through there, and the only thing that they left in the car was my briefcase, which had been kind of in the back on the floor. But they stole my uh, garment bag. They stole his garment bag. They stole his briefcase. They stole all his shit. And we're like, motherfucker, somebody stole the million-dollar belt. It's like, what do we do? And we we're looking all around. We're seeing if anybody saw anything. We call the cops. The cops come out, make a report. And I said, "Well, you got to call Vince." What I, I got to call him? You call him. Said, hey, motherfucker, it's on my belt. But I end up there's a little payphone there, and I it's now two thirty, three o'clock, maybe three fifteen in the morning. And I make that call. How'd that go? Hello? Hey, Vince, it's Bruce. Yeah, pal, what's up? Uh, well, I'm here with uh, Ted, and we were on our way to Boston, and we stopped and got something to eat, and somebody broke into our car, and it seems that... Somebody stole the um, million-dollar belt. Oh, what the fuck do you want me to do about it? Uh, well, I mean, I guess nothing. I just want to make you aware that <laughs> Ted lost the belt. And he's like, oh, God damn it, nothing I can do about it. Call the, call the fucking news. Make some goddamn noise. Make Wake somebody up, which I had already done by waking him up. So long story short, we, we get to the Hilton there at the airport, Boston airport. And we check in and we start calling people and we're looking for Virgil because Virgil usually was pretty good about grabbing the belt. And as I started doing my investigative work, I'm like, going, Ted, shit, man. Are you sure you had the belt? He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I had it because Virgil, we weren't riding together. So, I'm, you know, I'm responsible for the goddamn thing. And we can't get Virgil to answer his phone in his room. Well, lo and behold, uh, we later found out early in the morning that uh, when they were going to the airport, Virgil did have the belt and I woke Vince up at three o'clock in the morning on a false alarm. And I let Ted make the next call to, to let him know that he found the belt and that it was a mistake and all that other good shit. But, uh, it was a weird, weird night in Chinatown in Boston, My God, little kabuki ish.
0: Uh, let's fast forward, uh, to February 23rd, 1990. It's, uh, the main event. Uh, Dibiase beats Jake, the snake here. And afterwards Jake ends up stealing the million dollar belt. And that's kind of what gets them programmed for WrestleMania six. But along the way, um, Dibiase has a match with Jake and the big boss man attacks Jake, handcuffs him to the ropes and steals Damien because the belt is of course in the bag with the snake. Uh, so after the beatdown, uh, they of course walk over to the brother love show. Cause that's where all the big stuff happens. Uh, You're there, ready and waiting, and DiBiase talks to Slick about how good he paid them both. Big Bossman apparently knows nothing of this payoff, uh, and DiBiase then demands that the Bossman reach his hand into the bag and grab the belt. Uh, After DiBiase accuses Bossman of being scared to put his hand in the bag, he does so, uh, shows it to DiBiase, and then tells him he's going to have to get it the old-fashioned way. He's going to have to earn it, so he throws the belt back into the bag, goes back to the ring, and gives Jake the key to uncuff himself and hands him back the bag. So this is now two times uh, that DiBiase has involved money and payoffs to turn a heel, babyface, with a manager. Uh, And it happens very quickly. They do a very brief program together, and then it's dropped. Uh, Why do you think... Bossman DiBiase didn't have a longer program because the goal was just to get Bossman babyface facing onto something else and continue the Jake program.
1: Essentially, but let let me, let me tell you a good story about the Jake program. That was at a time that we were doing. Uh, there was a little spot in that program where Jake talked about, "Hey DiBiase, all you got to do is stick your hand in the bag and get your belt." But are you really sure it's Damien in that bag? It could be, and we did these vignettes with the most poisonous snakes in the world. And in the studio, we had our snake handler. Snake handler, his name was Albert. And I hate to say this about some, but he was a fucking goof. I mean, a guy that spends his entire life in, uh, in swamps, catching poisonous snakes and raising snakes. And also I'm not even sure Albert's still alive. I think he died from a snake bite, but he had been bitten all these times. And he brings to the studios in Stanford, all these damn snakes, these different poisonous snakes. He had that bull-headed thing, the most poisonous snake in the world. He had cobras. He had all kinds of shit. Um, he also had two spitting cobras that spit venom and they blind you and paralyze people. And they can spit it like 60 feet. Well, the snake handler, Mr. Albert, wasn't uh, always the most coherent person in the world, liked to dabble in uh, extreme narcotics at times. And believe it or not, Jake the Snake might have toyed in that from time to time has been chronicled in his life story. So there was a point where they slipped and the two spitting cobras got out of their enclosure and every, and and they are in a, we are in a uh, studio with a black floor, black curtains and everybody runs out. Guess who the only son of a bitch that stays in the studio gets caught in the studio, essentially. My fat ass. And i go up a ladder uh, that they used to hang lights and sat up there with two spitting cobras loose until I could get the uh, fucked up train or snake stalker trainer to come back in and catch them. So, yeah, I hated that program. Sorry, sidebar.
0: No, no, Uh, I think everybody digs those. Uh, At SummerSlam 1990... Uh, Sapphire was supposed to wrestle Sensational Sherry. But before the match, DiBiase buys the services of Sapphire. So Sherry wins the match by forfeit, and that sets up uh, DiBiase and Dusty Rhodes. So finally, Virgil. Uh, Why was he not on SummerSlam 90, second biggest show of the year? He who? Now, the subject
1: Debiase of it. or Dusty? Deviassi. We well, just said he was. Didn't he buy Sapphire?
0: No, he did. But I mean, he's not wrestling
1: because he was going to do the angle with Sapphire.
0: Okay. Uh, of course, we've covered Survivor Series 1990. Uh, Deviassi captain the team that debuted the Undertaker. Uh, if you'd like to hear that story, Survivor Series 1990 is up for your review in the archives. Uh, on the November 22nd episode of the main event, which was the day after the Survivor Series, uh, DiBiase challenges the Ultimate Warrior for the WWF title and loses. Uh, it was actually taped uh, prior to Halloween, even though it's airing uh, the day after Survivor Series. Royal Rumble 91 is Dusty's last pay-per-view with the promotion. DiBiase and Virgil uh, beat Dusty and Dustin Runnels, uh, which we covered earlier on our Dusty Rhodes episode. Uh DiBiase then orders Virgil to put the belt on him and Virgil hit him with it. Uh a few months before this happened, you could start to slowly see the seeds being planted. Uh Virgil separating from DiBiase. Why was this decision made to separate them? Was it just the natural storyline arc and what was the expectation of Mike as a performer?
1: it, it was a natural progression of the storyline and Virgil really wanted to he wanted to work. He wanted to wrestle. So he, he had been training and, uh, obviously he had been trained by the Samoans originally to be a wrestler and that's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to try. So we figured, give it a shot.
0: Did, uh, what was the feeling in the office? Did they think this would be a one and done thing? It feels like, uh, this, you know, there's not a lot more for him to do here.
1: Well, it was simply a way to get Virgil out of the out of the managerial role and into the ring. That's Something. the gist of it. It was a natural. I mean, all that time, those two guys' as heels and the relationship, it was a natural.
0: Uh, well, as we build towards WrestleMania, uh, DiBiase loses to Virgil by countout. Uh, Virgil had, of course, been cheered on by Roddy Piper, and Piper was ringside with him. Uh, during the match, Sensational Sherry, who earlier in the show had turned on Randy Savage after he lost his match to the Warrior, came down to help DiBiase. What was the thinking in putting Sherry with Ted? That he needed somebody who could take the bumps and such, get the heat. He needed something else. I mean, obviously, he doesn't need, you know, somebody to talk for him. Does this just the old all heels need a manager?
1: I think so. I <laughs> again i I don't know what that thinking was you know obviously Virgil wasn't wasn't the promo guy and didn't do uh, promos Ted didn't need anyone to talk for him, but it was I don't know if they felt that Ted was not enough on his own and needed somebody or or maybe it was just that philosophy that they felt you know heel's need a manager and just another way to freshen him up give him a new coat of paint and put Sherry with him and also to freshen Sherry up and give her something to do as well.
0: SummerSlam 91. Uh, I know you weren't there for this, so we'll move quickly. DiBiase loses the million dollar belt to Virgil. Uh, after that, uh, DiBiase competes in an unaired King of the Ring tournament. That's right. 1991, where he wrestled Ricky Steamboat to a draw. Uh, do you remember before you left there being discussion of a King of the Ring tournament or no?
1: Well, I think there had already been a King of the Ring tournament with Harley many years before that even.
0: Yeah, that's right. So they'd
1: they'd been doing that.
0: Was there, I guess what I'm trying to get to is when did this become talk of, hey, let's make it a pay-per-view. Was that done just in 93 or well before that and it just took a minute to get around to it?
1: No, it was done in 93. Looking for, you know, maybe doing something in the middle of the summer.
0: Uh, On the Survivor Series Showdown in 1991, and aired on the USA Network, by the way, DiBiase regains the million dollar belt from Virgil with the help of the Repo Man, Uh, which I'm sure we will cover when and if Demolition win a poll. But I love that that is the way to debut the Repo Man. Go steal the million dollar man's belt back, which makes total sense. But You know, where the fuck do you go with the Repo Man from there? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I wasn't watching at that
1: time, so. Well,
0: I get it. Uh, Debiase is in the 92 Royal Rumble. Again, Bruce wasn't there for that. We get lots of requests for the 92 Royal Rumble. We're not going to cover it. He was not there for it. It One
1: of the best Rumble matches ever.
0: Uh, Probably because you didn't book it, right? Probably. Uh, Ric Flair wins it uh, at the... um... Uh, Tuesday in Texas, pay-per-view, uh, circling back a minute. Dibiase and repo man defeated Tito Santana and Virgil. Now I only mentioned, yes, thank you. That's what I was looking for. That's what I was looking for. Cause I, I realized I skipped it and I'm like, wait a minute. Let me go back here. Damn. Dibiase tagging with the repo man against Tito Santana and Virgil.
1: The hell did Teddy and he don't do right um
0: at the end of the DiBiase sherry run it all just comes kind of quietly to an end where sherry proclaims her love for Shawn michaels uh Meltzer reported at the time the wwf was going to put DiBiase and Shawn michaels together as a team do you have any sort of recollection of that or is that rumor and innuendo
1: I've never heard that, so I don't know if that was true or not, but I never heard that, no. I knew that, you know, there was I always talk of Sean being a single. And.
0: Um, so no, I never heard that. After the split, the decision is made to pair DiBiase with Rotundo. Uh, and he, of course, debuts the character IRS, uh, Irwin R. Scheister. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Whose idea was IRS, and what did you think of the pairing of he and DiBiase?
1: Well, the IRS was uh, Vince's idea, and I did the initial vignettes with him. We actually did those in the studio in Stanford, Connecticut. Um, it just seemed like a natural thing, money and money, million-dollar man and the IRS
0: man. Uh, So, Money, Inc. quickly win the World Tag Team titles from the Legion of Doom on February 2nd. Uh, And at that point, uh, DiBiase and IRS hadn't even debuted on TV. Um, Why was the decision made to pair Jimmy Hart with these guys? Is this still just all heels must have a manager? That seems like such a foreign fit. For Jimmy Hart to be with TBRC.
1: Um uh, I don't know. I mean was I even there then? What when when was it?
0: Uh this would have been
1: February uh, of ninety two. I yeah. wasn't even there. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't there, so I don't know. I don't know what the thinking on that was. But I, I would if I was gonna guess, I would venture to guess that it was for that reason. Heels need managers. Hogan
0: must pose. It's, it's rumored. That's a t-shirt. We got to have a Hogan must pose shirt. Uh, it's rumored that the original WrestleMania, eight plan was supposed to be money, Inc defending against Jim Duggan and Sergeant slaughter. That didn't end up happening. They wound up facing the natural disasters and winning the match or losing the match rather by count out. Um, and then we move on to, um, the natural disasters actually winning the tag titles, uh, on a house show, which is kind of random, July twentieth of nineteen ninety two, uh, and then uh, Money Inc. wrestled the Legion of Doom at SummerSlam ninety two, and LOD wins the match when Animal pins DiBiase after a power slam. Uh, Money Inc. regains the tag belts when you're back in October uh, on a wrestling challenge broadcast. So it's it's his story as a tag competitor is similar. I guess to his singles, he's kind of up and down, up and down, and he kind of talked about before DiBiase did, where he could feel uh, that the that he was slipping a little bit uh, after working WrestleMania five with Brutus uh, and then SummerSlam with Snuka. He felt it slipping and didn't know why, and he felt um, that he just needed a little more, and then he would have been over the top, and supposedly. Hogan agreed with that. Um, Do you have any sort of recollection of DiBiase expressing that he was unhappy with his level of push after him debuting so big and then seemingly being cooled off so quickly?
1: Well, he wasn't cooled off quickly, but he he was definitely feeling, you know, what the hell can I do? Why am I not? Why am I not on top? Right. And I think all guys go through that when they experience that and they're there and they they are cooled off. They want to know, well, what the hell can I do to get back there? And he felt that if he could just get that, that next dump and he could be back to where he was. But that cooling off period, I think, in my opinion, is essential sometimes, especially for a heel.
0: November of 92, uh, Saturday night's main event, Money Inc. defend the titles against the Ultimate Maniacs, Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior. Money Inc. loses the match by countout, but of course, they retain the titles. DBS is in the 93 Royal Rumble as well. He has an early entry with number four. He's put out by The Undertaker. And then Money Inc. starts working an angle with Hulk Hogan and Brutus Beefcake, which sets up a match for them at WrestleMania 9. Uh, This is one of the very early editions uh, of Monday Night Raw where all of this happens, uh, where DiBiase and and IRS attack him with a briefcase because this is right after Beefcake is kind of telling the story of the parasailing accident, which happened a couple of years prior, uh, and that he's got all of these injuries and precautions that need to be taken, uh, and now they're hitting him in the face with a briefcase um why was this done where jimmy hart turns at this point do you recall
1: well the whole reason that the angle and everything was done was and the reason it was done with money inc was because they trusted ted they they trusted ted and rotunda with beefcake and beefcake was fragile and they didn't want him getting hurt and any more damage being done to his face, so they trusted DiBiase. Uh, I believe it was Ted that swung the briefcase. Pat Patterson was the one that went down and put the gimmick in his nose and all that shit. Um, but it was that was simply a matter of trust, so that you know Hogan liked working with both those guys, and they trusted him with Beefcake, Jimmy Hart that was a situation because Jimmy was doing a lot of Hulk's personal stuff at the time outside of wrestling and they were traveling together and put them together in front of the camera too.
0: I find it interesting. Obviously we know how WrestleMania nine ended and we'll cover it at some point, but the Hogan here is working, uh, for a tag title match as opposed to the world title. Um, he would of course leave world champion anyway, so shows you what I know. Uh, Meltzer reported in the March 15th observer that DiBiase had herniated a disc in his back and was going to be kept out of the ring until mania. Do you remember there being any concern as to whether or not DiBiase could make this show? We're winding down his singles career here or his his wrestling career rather. Uh, do you remember there being any sort of wonder or concern? Oh shit. We've got this book. Is he going to make the match?
1: Yeah, there was definitely concern because he, he was hurt. And if you listen to the doctors, the doctors would all say, you know, don't get in the ring, don't wrestle. And Ted really wanted to do it. Didn't know what he would do if he didn't wrestle. Right. So, you know, they're they're going to go find the doctor that says, no, it's okay to wrestle.
0: And he did have a Lloyd's London policy, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. At the King of the Ring in June, Uh, Money Inc. teams with the Head Shrinkers to take on the Steiner Brothers and the Smoking Gun. Um, Billy Gunn pins DiBiase with that dreaded small package. Uh, The next day, on June 14th, Money Inc. would lose the titles to the Steiner Brothers, then win them back on June 16th, and then lose them back to the Steiner's on the 19th. And all three of these title swaps were done at house shows, which is very unique, especially in 2017. Do you recall these house show title swaps, and why was this so common at the time
1: it wasn't common actually it was uncommon that's why we did it we wanted to put some value back in the house shows and be able to say to people hey anything can happen on any night it just doesn't it just doesn't happen on tv or on pay-per-views the perception was that if it's a championship match that that title is only going to change at a pay-per-view and that was the feeling we were getting from people so we wanted to mix it up and say, hey, by God, it happened in Saginaw, Michigan last Tuesday, but you won't believe what happened on Sunday night in uh, San Bernardino. That was the thinking behind it.
0: Uh, Money, Inc. would never win the tag titles again, and then they would go ahead and split up. DiBiase would work a short angle with Razor Ramon, uh, and then after Ramon lost to the One Two Three kid on Raw, DiBiase starts giving him a hard time about it. But then he himself loses a match to the one, two, three kid, uh, that sets up a match between Ramon and Dibiase at SummerSlam 93, which Ramon won. And SummerSlam, uh, was Ted's last appearance on WWF TV. Uh, he would leave the company a short time after. And Bruce Ted has said that he decided to leave the WWF to fix some marital problems, or he had gotten maybe a little too much into partying uh, and the lifestyle, so to speak. Do you recall his departure from the WWF, and how did you first hear about it, and how was it received?
1: Well, Ted and I were friends outside of the ring as well, and Ted was going through some rough times. And the business lifestyle was not a friend of Ted DiBiase's, because try as he would, it was hard to... After all those years, at the end of the night, it, it was hard to just go back to your room and and go to bed. There's a there's a winding down period. At least for me, there always was. There was just a, wind, a winding down period, and it wasn't um, the easiest thing to just go back and chill out in your room by yourself. So Ted was was fighting a lot of demons, and. His family was very important to him, and he made that decision. His health wasn't that good. His back wasn't good. And he knew that if he continued, it was only going to get worse, and the temptations were still going to be in front of him. He didn't feel he was strong enough at that point in his life to just say no. So he said no to the business and felt that if he removed himself from the business, he would remove himself from temptation and go home, work on his family life, and take care of what was important.
0: Uh, in September, Ted returns to the All Japan wrestling promotion and uh, reforms his tag team with Stan Hansen uh, and they win the tag titles again. Uh, in on November uh, 13th they're stripped of the tag titles, which is apparently a yearly tradition at the time uh, so they could do the world's strongest, uh, Tag Determination League. Uh, I guess I said that right. Probably didn't. Uh, they defeated uh, Tracy Smothers and Richard Slinger in the tournament, and Ted suffered the neck and back injuries that forced him to withdraw from the tournament. Uh, he returns to the WWF in January of '94 as a commentator this time for the Royal Rumble. So, how does this come about? Is this the time when he cashes in? on the Lloyds of London and can't get in the ring but can still participate in the business as a contributor on the headset. Uh he forms the million dollar corporation and becomes a little bit of a heel manager. The faction would go on to include IRS, Bam Bam Bigelow, Sid, Nikolai Volkoff, King Kong Bundy, Kama, Tatanka, and the one two three kid. They had a good run for about a year or so. Anything in particular stick out to you about the Million Dollar Corporation besides the Underfaker, which we'll cover in our SummerSlam 94 episode? No, I thought he had
1: a good run then, and he was able to give guys. You know, Bam Bam Bigelow wasn't the greatest talker in the world. He was able to elevate Bam Bam uh, during that time. Uh, Sid, I don't know that he did much for Sid or, or Bundy, but it, it was a good group. At that time and gave him a little bit of prolonged life. And then he, he went on to, uh, the biggest star that he ever managed, you know, after that with, uh, Steve Austin, the ring up.
0: Well, before we get there, uh, D-B-I-C managed Bigelow in the main event of WrestleMania 11 against Lawrence Taylor. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to a fun story for that. When we cover WrestleMania 11, can you add our appetite for that WrestleMania 11 episode?
1: I had a lot of fun with Lawrence Taylor. Uh,
0: <laughs> Lawrence
1: was Lawrence was a lot of fun and a absolute natural in the ring. Uh, Floyd Mayweather was another one that was a natural. But when LT first got into the ring, you can always tell by looking at a guy the way that he walks in the ring whether they're going to pick it up or not. And LT was just a natural athlete, and God, he was a stud. But he was a lot of fun, easy to work with, and that was that was a fun WrestleMania with all those guys.
0: Uh, we'll get to it at some point. Around the end of 95, uh, Dibiase is on the search for a new million-dollar champion, and on January 8, 1996, that very edition of Monday Night Raw, the brother-love show of all places. Was that the last brother-love show? January may 96?
1: Have, may have been it, either that or Brett. Yeah, you know, obviously I did a couple of more appearances, but not a Brother Love show. It was either, it was either uh, the Ringmaster or one with Bret Hart.
0: DiBiase introduces the next million dollar champion, the Ringmaster, who we know to become Stone Cold Steve Austin. DiBiase's last appearance on WFTV was in your house number eight. Beware of Dog Two it happened in May of '96. Uh, This is the one where they lost power. It was originally scheduled for May 26th. It lost a poll. We'll cover it at some point in the future. Uh, As the storyline goes, Austin was facing Savio Vega in a strap match, and if Austin lost, DiBiase would have to leave the WWF. And, of course, Austin lost. So, in reality, he really left to go to WCW, and Meltzer reported at the time that DiBiase gave his notice to the WWF that he would be leaving to go to WCW when his contract expired, which was believed to be in August. Meltzer reports it was a three year deal with WCW worth $225 for the first year, $250 for the second year, and $275 for the third year. Uh, and he had planned to go in and work as a manager and as an announcer. He also had the Sloyd's of London policy paying him, which we've talked about in great detail in the Mr. Perfect episode, if you'd like to catch up how that works. Uh, but he believed, he being Meltzer, that it was going to pay out as a major lump sum because of his career-ending neck injury. Once he's with WCW, of course, uh, DiBiase is a member of the NWO at one point. Uh, That's how he debuts in the crowd uh, and then goes on to manage the Steiner brothers. He's actually in WCW from 96 until 99. He kind of indicated that Bischoff didn't really have anything for him after the NWO concept. He didn't really need to manage the Steiner's. Uh, So he asked to kind of go his own way Uh, and asked for his release and it was granted. Uh, so he did not, you know, continue the wrestling move as long as maybe he could have and got into the ministry. He released his first book around that time, uh, and really started to get heavy into the ministry. Uh, he returned in Oh four briefly as a member of the creative team. Uh, he was there for about a year and a half, I guess. Uh, and then in April of 05, he was hired as a creative consultant and a road agent for the SmackDown brand. So I want to hear about Ted in 04 and 05 and how you convinced him to be an agent and what his role was on the creative team or what he really did.
1: Oh, I didn't convince that poor bastard. Stephanie McMahon convinced him. Uh, Ted's great in the ring and Ted is great at coming up with his own stuff and and wrestling in the ring and putting together a terrific match. Ted's also really good at at working with young talent and helping them make sense out of what they want to do. Ted is not an idea guy. He's, he's not really a good finish man. Um, He's, he can go do it. He has a hard time telling you how to do it. So, he was a fish out of water. He wasn't comfortable. He didn't like it. He put on so much weight when he was on creative. And it would be the same it would be the same story every week. He would just go, Bruce, this isn't what I do. How did I get myself into this? And um, I'm not happy. And he, he was away God, he was away from his family more then than he was when he was on the road before. So Ted just wasn't really happy. He didn't He didn't enjoy that process at all. And if it were not for Dusty Rhodes, Ted probably would have snapped and gone home a lot sooner. There was a point where Ted uh, had, I guess it was a heart issue, but I was there. I was up in, in Stanford. It was during one of my weeks that I would have to uh, go to Stanford. And... I'm at the office, and we get a call from Dusty, and it's like, Teddy is, we're on our way to the hospital. We're in an ambulance. He, we're sitting there having breakfast, and his eyes rolled back into his head. And I looked at him, and I said, you all right? And he just fainted on me. He just, boom, he's out, right in the middle of the restaurant, right there in front of everybody. And so we called the 911. I got the ambulance. We're over here at the hospital. We're like, what the fuck? So we go over to go check on Ted, a couple of us. And one of the funny, one of the funniest things was Ted is laying on a gurney in the emergency room. They got one of those curtains uh, around him. And they've got all kinds of shit hooked up to him. You know, they got monitors and everything. And they're putting IVs in him. And the nurse comes in. And I, she either needed a uh, she either needed a urine sample or Ted had to pee. One of the two, I don't remember. But she hands him the one of those plastic urinals, and we're standing there, and she says, "Well, he he might need some help. One of you guys want to help him?" And I don't know why this was just funny to me, but Dusty steps back with, "Oh." He going to release old Jumbo now. Everybody get out of the way. <laughs> it was just one of those things that Brother Love, the Million Dollar Man, and the American Dream are in the emergency room. And Dusty says, everybody watch out. He's going to release old Jumbo now. And it was, I guess you kind of had to be there. But us trying to tell Teddy we weren't going to hold the urinal for him while he released old Jumbo was, I guess, funnier to me than well you know. Spend my day oh, <laughs> working gosh. hard on the go.
0: That's all I got, folks. Sorry. Ted inducted it's, Sherry It's late Mart- at night now. Ted inducted Sherry Martel in the WWE Hall of Fame in oh six and then Duggan in eleven. Uh he himself went into the Hall of Fame in two thousand ten. He was inducted by his sons Ted Junior and Brett DiBiase. Uh he did have a couple of other brief appearances. Uh, the night after WrestleMania 22, he offered Eugene $1,000 to dribble basketball 100 times and then kicked the ball away, recreating his old famous angle. Uh, on the 15th anniversary of Raw on December 10th of 2007, he won a 15-man battle royal. He wasn't even wrestling in. His former partner, IRS, actually won the match, but DiBiase came down and offered him a bribe to let him win, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, May 19th of 2008, DiBiase was shown sitting with Mr. McMahon, having a business discussion. And the next week on raw Ted introduced his son, Ted jr. As the newest member of the WWE. Uh, what did you think of, uh, Ted jr.'s time in the WWE?
1: Underutilized. I thought that Ted jr. Was, I thought he was an excellent talent. I thought he was well above average. He could talk. He could wrestle, and he looked great. But there was, God, Vince didn't even want to use his name. Wanted to give him a different name. Wow. And it was almost as if he was snake bit from the beginning. I don't know what it is that they didn't see in in Ted Jr., because I thought he had it all. Young, good-looking guy, I, I would put him up there with Randy Orton. I just, I I thought he was special. I thought he had it. I, I enjoyed his work and he had the pedigree and it just didn't work out for him.
0: As fate would have it, uh, Ted, who everybody believed to be one of the best wrestlers, uh, in the company never became the WWF champion or the intercontinental champion. Uh, he would have, of course, the million dollar belt and a couple of tag runs Uh, And he's now a Christian minister. In 1999, he founded the Heart of David Ministry, and he's traveled the world ministering to churches, children, camps, conferences, prisons, man, everywhere, uh, including Promise Keepers, Youth of the Nation. He's had a couple of books. Uh, Every Man Has His Price is one of them you could pick up on Amazon. Uh, What do you think is uh, Ted DiBiase's legacy as a professional wrestler?
1: Everybody's got a price. It's, he, to me, Ted DiBiase was the, the perfect. If you could draw out a plan of what you would want a wrestling heel to be. And, 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 and I also dare say a, a babyface as well, but he was a much better heel. And if you could draw out a blueprint and plan for what that would be, you would draw Ted DiBiase.
0: Well. I gotta say, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited that we were able to cover this, especially in such uh, great detail. Um, the Million Dollar Man is somebody who I believe uh, is going to be remembered forever as one of the greatest gimmicks in the history of the WWF. And kind of uh, this podcast to me today was worthwhile just because we got to hear the Vince McMahon cigarette story uh, on the airplane, and that you kind of realized was the genesis of, of your understanding of who the million dollar man was really based on. Uh, anything else you want to touch on here, uh, before we kind of move on with this one?
1: No, I think we covered it, but you know what? I I think we probably missed a lot too, because Ted had a great career that spanned so many years and touched so many people. I'm sure we missed something. And I'm sure that our audience will let us know by God. Thank you for that.
0: We'll be back next week to discover what happened when Ravishing Rick Rude came to the WWF. I'm calling it now. You don't that's know that gonna that's going to win, Conrad. Well, keep it from winning. Go follow at Pritchard Show. We're going to make sure that next week is as good as you expect because we're going to go deep on Ravishing Rick Rude. See you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. That's the end of the show. Why are you still listening? John
1: brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together,